the veterinary behaviorist said, that's what he said to me. He said, one day, I hope you realize this is not a failure of training. This is a failure to accept reality. I know firsthand that when you're raising a challenging, reactive, or aggressive dog, that life isn't all unicorns and rainbows. But I also know that it helps to hear other people's stories. My name is Kaiser van Overbeek, and on this podcast, we share stories of the force-free training journeys of amazing dogs who are just a little rough around the edges. Before we start this episode, I want to say it's a very long one and it is divided into two parts roughly. And I want to put a trigger warning on the second part because in the second part we talk about behavioral euthanasia. And I know that this is a sensitive topic to a lot of people. So I want to give you the opportunity to opt out of listening to that part. I do believe it is an extremely important topic that is not addressed enough and that can make it so that a lot of people feel very alone in the decision if they do have to make it and that's why also I didn't cut in this podcast recording because I felt that everything needed to be said and that I needed to keep it like this and in full. Um, That said the first part of the episode is not about that at all and it's absolutely worth a listen. Um, We talk about a lot of topics. We talk about the state of the dog training industry. We talk about the paradigm shift that has taken place within the dog training community. Um, It's chock full of wisdom. The second part of the podcast starts around about the one hour mark and you will hear the conversation morph into the second topic so you will have time to switch off and stop listening if that is what you choose to do so the one hour mark that's roughly where that is at also i want to say that the show notes to this episode are ridiculously long they contain an enormous amount of information and i definitely want to encourage you to check them out i think just maybe bookmarking the page might be worth it because there is so much good stuff in there. So do go ahead and check that out on kaisefanoverbake.com slash podcast, or just google it, you will be able to find it and go there. So that's that said, over to the episode. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode. Uh, I always kind of like to say like who am I talking to but also like where the person's from because everybody's always from all over the place. And today, the person I'm talking to is in Utah, whereas I am still in the Netherlands. And I kind of feel like this podcast has made it now because I feel like I'm talking to celebrity in the dog uh, world. And it's Annie Phoenix, who you might know, who wrote the book, The Midnight Dog Walker. So if you have a reactive or aggressive dog, you've probably heard of the book. Um, She's actually, she's written a second book that's about to come out that we're going to talk about a little bit as well. But before I give too much away, I'm just going to say, um, Annie, over to you. And maybe you can introduce yourself 
quickly for the people who don't already know you and follow you. Well, thank you for having me very much. I enjoy your podcast and I think it's a really important one focusing on trouble dogs, um, reactive dogs, whatever the label people have over them now. But um, so I'm honored to be here. I appreciate it. I am a certified canine behaviorist through the Association of Into Dogs, which is a European credential. I am a fear-free certified professional, which is the fear-free program from Dr. Marty Becker. And my most recent one um, certification that is so intriguing to me is through Kim Brophy's Applied Ethology course. And she calls, um, calls us the family dog mediator. And I, I think it's so interesting because it's shifting the whole, you know, we're not the, she says the trainers are, are kind of treated like gods when they come into a house and we can solve all your problems. And the family dog mediation is we have two species here and we need to make them both have a win-win situation. Um, and I do have a second book coming out in September and it's um, the Midnight Dog Walkers was a lot about um, just reactivity in general. And that was written in 2016 um, because that's mostly what I was seeing and dealing with and seemed to be the, and that's still the number one complaint that a lot of people have. But uh, this new book is a different publisher and it's, it's much bigger in scope. It talks about almost every kind of um, behavior, so-called problem that we have, excessive digging, excessive barking, chasing, not liking strangers, house-to-house uh, -house interfighting between dogs. Um, and, and I had the opportunity, which I'm really excited about, to interview 21 experts from around the world. And so they have, some have quite lengthy interviews in there um, and there's new things. They're talking, we're, I wanted to talk about new things. How, how do we help dogs with new methods and not just counter conditioning, um, not just some of the stuff we've been doing for 50 years. Let's, I, it's, so I'm very excited that those people are in there and we're gonna start interviewing them as well on our live chats on Facebook. We were actually talking about that before because you told me that you know you almost didn't wanna didn't want to start writing the book. Um, so in the end, what made you change your mind? What made you go like, okay, I'll do it? It was very close to not not being written. Uh, and I hadn't planned on writing a second book. I, my, a new editor contacted me with a, the second publishing house. Um, they bought out the rights to the first book, called me out of the blue. And I almost didn't believe it. She said, um, we'd like you to do a second edition of the Midnight Dog Walkers. And I'm like, well, that sounds pretty good, second edition. And by the end of the conversation, she said, okay, it's, you know, you realize that a second edition is a whole new book, right? And I'm like, no, I thought I was just going to update, you know, a chapter or two and have some new information in there, certainly, but it's, so it's a brand new book. Um, and the reason that I almost said no is that I was semi-retired. I wasn't doing a lot in the dog industry and I was having a great time. <laughs> this is the second year of COVID. So a year ago or last August, um, but I was, I didn't have any stress in my life other than COVID, you know, and not doing the things that we're used to doing. Um, and I was enjoying being calm and not having, um, difficult cases to deal with, you know, because I've always worked in behavior cases. And I very nearly said no. And a friend of mine, Denise O'Moore, who's an Irish behaviorist, she she was on me and said, you need to do this. This is you need to update it and you need to do it for dog owners. Because I always have written for dog owners versus some people write for other trainers, like train the trainers. I'm there for the dog owner. Um, and <laughs> I walked out to my husband, I said, He's a very supportive guy. I said, I'm just not going to sign it. We're just, 
you know, I'm 56 and we're thinking retirement years and I'm enjoying life. And like I said, no stress and writing a book is enormously stressful. I did sign it. I did write it. I felt sick about it <laughs> because it's a lot of work. It's, a, it's hard to write. And this is a 300,000 uh, 300, word book oh, in six months. They wanted it in six months time. And that seems impossible now. I don't even, other than COVID, because we weren't, you know, we weren't going out. We weren't going to restaurants. We weren't traveling. Um, I don't know if I would have said yes, because I knew how much work writing a book could be. But I'm very glad I did. It was very cathartic in the end. It, it, it changed me from being a pessimistic, grumpy senior dog trainer to becoming very optimistic and even um, consulting with dog owners or guardians again. And I really, I was sort of doing it, you know, if they contacted me because they found the book, I wasn't like seeking clients. Um, and now I, I hung my shingle out in Utah and um, I'm started to work with clients again because I, I learned new, new things to do from these experts that I interviewed. And that was very exciting for me. It just, it woke me up out of my stupor. I mean, since this podcast is a lot about like the mental aspects of, of having a reactive or aggressive dog, like what was the, the shift then for you that, that made you go like, okay, I'll do it. I've, I'm learning all these new things. And, and like, what made you say, okay, let's, you know, like, let's hang out that shingle and let's get going yeah. again. Like, what was the shift for you there? You said finding new a- things, but okay. Like, <laughs> That's a great question. Um, it's a great question. So one thing I asked myself, because I am trained as a journalist, I grew up in a journalistic family. We had newspapers in Central Texas, and I, I wrote for Dogster Magazine. I've written for lots of different dog publications, and I, I like, I feel like a good journalist asks the right question at the right time. And we're we're just nosy. We ask. That's our job is to ask questions: who, what, where, when, and why. We say as journalists. And so my question to myself, as kind of being out of the industry like not taking courses, not getting new certifications, not going to back when they had face-to-face conferences. I just was doing my own thing. And, um, you know, like I said, (laughs) really enjoying life (laughs) and being most semi-retired. So I asked myself when I agreed to write the book, what's changed? What's new? How are dog trainers in the six or seven years since I wrote The Midnight Dog Walkers are they still, is it still counter conditioning and desensitizing and management and some other things as the main tools or is, has something shifted? And I was like, please, please tell me something has shifted, but I wasn't optimistic. And then I found um, Andrew Hale's YouTube discussions called Beyond the Operant. And for someone who isn't a dog trainer, it's Beyond Operant Conditioning, which is, for lack of a better term, looking at behavior that the dog is giving us and, and changing that behavior. Um, only what we can visibly see in the dog. And it's operant, operant um, conditioning, classical conditioning is based on 100, 200 year old science from dogs in a laboratory. Um, and so I'm like, there has to be something new. We can't just use 200 old science, 200 year old science. And I found Andrew Hale, he was interviewing Kim Brophy, who's an applied ethologist. She became famous quickly on the dog scene because she did a famous TED talk. I think it's called Don't Treat Your Dog as a Pet. I think it's something um, like that. Also- I think it's actually linked if people are listening. The episode with Tara Stilwells, um, Tara mentioned it. She took Kim's course and, and spoke highly of her. So that's when I 
went and looked her up and, and looked at the TED talk. So I think you're right as far as the titles. People can go back to the show notes of that one and look it up. And I'll definitely, I'll link it again here. But yeah. She, she wrote a, a book called, called Meet Your Dog. And so she divided the, well, she didn't, but way before her at time, my time, she, um, dogs are classified by breeds, herding breeds, guardian breeds, hunting breeds. She has a one called Natural Dog. Um, and talked specifically about, well, she came up with this program called LEGS, L-E-G-S, and that's um, where the family media- family dog mediation um, comes from, her LEGS course, Applied Ethology and LEGS. Applied Ethology, as she de- de- described it to me, she's one of the experts, I interviewed her in two sections in the book, actually, um, is the intersection of domestic animals, inter- um, intersection with human beings. So it can include cat- cows in a feed lot, chickens, dogs, zoo animals. And it's looking at all the science around an animal. It's not just observable behavior that we can see. It's way beyond that. So legs for her is, um, L is for learning. What's the learning environment in the dog's life? And how does the dog learn? And when did it, you know, like my dogs were taken from their mother at five weeks old. So what did they learn? What do they miss learning from their siblings? Yeah. Yeah. E is environment. Every dog's environment is unique and, and different, including from before they were born in the mother's environment, because we know things can be passed down in utero. Um, G is, oh gosh, L-E-G-S, genes, duh, yeah. <laughs> genes, um, because we can't change genes. It is what it is. You know, a lot of people say the environments may have more important, be important, but they, they work together. You have to consider the genes. And S is self for the, the self Every, what does that dog love? What is that dog scared of? You know, that the, they have their own unique phenotype and self. So Andrew Hale, who's a UK behaviorist, started talking to Kim Brophy on their YouTube channel, Beyond the Operant. They brought in Dr. Kathy Murphy, Murphy, who is brilliant. They're all brilliant, but she's a neuroscientist and a veterinarian. And they started saying, let's look at the whole dog. Let's look at the dog's emotional experience, as Andrew calls it. And that's kind of what I felt like the Midnight Dog Walker was, is I had such an emotional connection to dogs my whole life, like most of us do. But in training, the training world, we got so stuck on operant conditioning and the the science, Yeah. again, old science, (laughs) um, doesn't take into the animal's emotional experience. And I, so I stopped writing for a month. Because it was so fascinating. I encourage anybody to go listen to Beyond the Operant. It's not just for trainers. Um, and I think they maybe had five or six hours worth. And then I found more from Andrew. And he and I became friends. And because he's an amazing human being. I interviewed Andrew as well. And um, he started um, Dog Centered Care, which is his Facebook group. Uh, and talking specifically about the emotional experience and how important that is. And I feel like that's been missing. So that's you asked what, what's new. Mm-hmm. And I feel like in the Midnight Dog Walkers, I was talking about, you know, situations that made me cry that I ran into as somebody very active in rescue or how a dog saved my life. My crazy, well, I can't say it was crazy. My untrained Rottweiler I had in college um, saved my life literally twice. And so I had this bond and this connection that I never felt was really being addressed because we can, dog trainers get in so many fights online whatever whether you use adversive or you're force free and i'm in the force free camp 
you're using the wrong quadrant, the, the four quadrants of operant conditioning. You're, you're an idiot because you didn't, you don't have the right certification and you know, you're not using the right sign. Is it, I mean, just in the weeds when the or, dog or is the sitting there. Or the argument that there's four quadrants and we should be using all four of them just because they exist. Right. Like positive punishment. Uh, it's just, it's a, what I learned from Beyond the Operant is this is a waste of time at this point because new things are happening. Like we, they discovered the love hormone um, by studying dogs' brains and hormones when a dog looks at us and we look at them. Um, the love hormone is expressed. So does dog, so people are even arguing if dogs can love or not. And it's like, really, have you had a dog? <laughs> if you had a dog and you love the dog, then you, most of us as owners would say, I love the dog and the dog loves me. If there's a healthy relationship between the two, that's been in debate. <laughs> Does the dog have feelings? Are they sentient? And I feel like what I've learned from talking to these experts, just put all that over here, have your science. We're not saying throw it out. There's some, there's validity and we need it, but let's also bring in some welfare concerns for the dog. And what, and like, um, Linda Michaels, who's a friend of mine also, she's called the Dog Psychologist in California. She came up with the hierarchy of a dog's needs. Yep. Um, I love which her is very, Facebook group also, like the, the Do No Harm Facebook group. She's I think a, was my first real exposure to like a, a really, a, a group that really advocates for, for force free. And she also, you know, she's also very adamant in, in, um, for example, mentioning that something is a cue, not a command, because we're asking the dog to cooperate, whereas we're not, you know, not forcing them um, to do anything, which basically we can't anyway, we can't force any other living being to do our bidding. But I digress, carry on. <laughs> no, but that's, that's the shift that you're talking about, the paradigm shift that's happening that people like Kim, Brophy, Kathy Murphy, Andrew Hale, Linda, Michaels, um, and hopefully my book, because they're in it, <laughs> and I learned from them. Um, it's a paradigm shift, because we're asking for the first time, it feels like, at least as an industry, not as owners, we're asking, what does the dog need? What makes the dog happy? Um, what we want from the dog may be different from the dog's desires and genetic influences. It's like dog trainers will just, if you want a dog trainer to get stressed out, say that you just got a border collie puppy and you have six kids in the house and the dog is chasing the kids and and hurting them and we're like well you got a hurting dog it's <laughs> that's programmed in the dog's head and so people get dogs for specific reasons and don't tend to think about the genetic influences when we're the ones that did it the humans bred that into the dog and then we're mad at the dog like a beagle goes on a walk or a hunting dog and just sniffs all the time and won't pay attention or they won't come back. It's like we, the nose, their nose is their, it's like their eyes. And we bred specific hunting dogs to do specific things or gun dogs. And then we get mad because they're not good pets. Yeah. Then we, then we get upset when they do what they're supposed to do, what they were bred to do. So weird. Kim has an interesting story. Kim Brophy in her book, Meet, Meet Your Dog, which is so fascinating to me. Um, she was called out. She's in North Carolina. She was called out um, a woman had in, I think inherited a terrier and I don't know what kind of terrier from somebody who passed away in her family and she lived alone in a cabin way up in the mountains and the dog um, was losing its mind running the four walls of the cabin and trying to attack the walls and the dog was just about to go on medication and they had tried several other trainers and they tried 
all the aversives and the dog was just, it, it would probably look like OCD um, behavior to an owner and to maybe some trainers. Kim comes in and she sits with the dog and sees that it's a terrier and says, how long have you lived in the house? And the woman hadn't been there very long, a couple of months. And, and it was winter. And so Kim said, I think you have a mouse in, or a rat infestation in your walls. And that's what the terrier's doing. And it, it, that's what the problem was. They, they you know, whatever they did to kill all the mice that were stuck in the walls or they were coming in because it was cold. And the dog hears so much better than us and smells so much better. So the dog's like, the brain says, get the rat, get the rat, get the rat. Oh, and he goodness. was expressing, yeah, that's a, that's a powerful example. He was expressing his genes. And so what do we do? This is why it becomes painful when you understand canine behavior and canine body language to watch a dog suffering. Like all those, I hate seeing videos of little dogs like chihuahuas and people like getting right in their face and they think it's funny to see the little teeth and the little snarl. Like that dog is saying, go away, go away, go away. And they just laugh or kids parents posting videos of their kids climbing all over oh, the dog yeah. and pulling them like it's painful the dog is has shocked um, Patel who's a I believe a Scottish trainer behavior says dogs are whispering to us all the time you know they lift a paw they put their shout. ears back they they lick their lips and we do not see it and, and humans have got to be way better about that and that's one of the new things is we, we need owners to understand canine behavior before the dog bites and the yeah. canine body language because they aren't whispering until they have to shout. Yeah, I have to say, I'm, I feel like I'm lucky that I've gotten access to some of that material pretty quickly. Um, and that even like my kids, I have two teenage sons. They're so good at um, like looking for body language and even like with Rusty, sometimes like we've known him all of, uh, of his life, but sometimes we can't really tell. Um, like he loves getting belly rubs, for example, from my youngest son, and then he'll flop over. But not every time that he flops over, it's because he wants belly rubs. And I can really tell that my son and he's looking at him and he's like, mom, I'm seeing like these and these signs, like he will even he'll be able to, to tell me like the eyes or the ears or whatnot I said, I'm not sure right now. He said, So I'm just not going to do anything. I'm like, Oh, my God, this is this is so amazing. At least to me, that's amazing. Like also as a mom that he's paying such good attention to what the dog's saying, and then going like, well, when I'm not sure, my choice is going to be just to leave him be. And Perfect. that's just the coolest thing but one of the other things that you were saying and this is um that's something that i'm struggling with which is maybe completely off topic but hey um <laughs> when we're talking about animal welfare and like looking at the dog uh, and i know that there's big differences between the us and europe there as well but for example one of the things that i haven't done and that's always sort of in the back of my mind is rusty is not um neutered and I know that there's a couple of countries, um, Holland, where I live is not one of them, uh, but the Scandinavian countries also, where it's illegal, for example, to neuter um, your dog if there's no medical reason for it, because it's considered mutilation of a, oh. a living being. And I know that the, it, it, neutering and spaying is, of course, like a, a topic that's probably not that black and white, especially if there's uh, if you're living in a country where there's a lot of stray dogs. 
but for me that's also one of the things where I'm like well yeah but this dog is you know like I I already determine everything in this dog's life I'm not just gonna take away his reproductive organs just because I think maybe that might make my life easier which by the way I think there's also plenty of research saying that that's definitely also not always the case and then even taking like this is how my brain works right but um I just tend to spin on like even taking that a step further like um like the breeding of dogs is that um like why are we doing that what that's also something where we're putting um the stud and the bitch together when she's in heat basically not giving her any say in the matter either like how many litters there are going to be or like even that like that's that you know like this is all the stuff that's going through my mind where I'm kind of going like okay I could have thought of that sooner but it's definitely something I'm going to think about you know like if I'm going to get another dog or not you know like why are we doing that why yeah that's also us sort of enforcing our will on another sentient being okay sorry end of tangent <laughs> well no i think it's a very important one in the in the first chapter of my book a new book i i outline why are dogs so stressed and a huge one is our breeding practices puppy mills in the in the states backyard breeding oops litters and what because what you said because of spay and neuter because it, it was a great idea and it began out of a need because there were so many unwanted dogs i come from texas and it was i got my start in training by rescuing my husband and I fostered almost 400 dogs over a decade oh. um, and that's where I, I learned canine body language like in a hurry because they're in a stress situation but since we have removed their right to breed which is a right of every animal on the planet um, except for those that are captives by us like zoo animals and dogs um, that has a that's one reason every dog trainer I interviewed or I do interview is that works in behavior is swamped because not only COVID dogs, but um, because there's like, there was a study that said 75%, and I think it's like 8,000 owners all over the world, 75% reported behavior issue. Now, and if you ask trainers, they're just swamped with reactivity or weird stuff, you know, weird OCD type behaviors, but most of it is still reactivity, barking and lunging, not being able to, not being resilient, not being able to say that's another dog, that's fine. Biting, bites are uh, increasing. I mean, it's just, you have to look at why. I, that's another thing I do as a reporter. Why, why and how? Why are, why are behaviorists so freaking busy right now? Um, COVID was certainly some of it because so many people got dogs that maybe shouldn't have had dogs. <laughs> and now the dog, they've gone back to work and the dog has to deal with an, a drastically changed environment. But I think it's so much of it goes back to breeding that we have damaged dogs, especially in the United States because of our breeding practices. Like I came out of rescue, as I said, and we neutered and spayed everything at three months. All of it just, I mean, that's like, they, they need those hormones. Their behavior exists for a reason. If a dog is screaming and lunging because it sees another dog or a kid on a bike, the dog is saying, this is making me uncomfortable. The dog's not being bad. He's saying, go away, go away, or whatever he's saying in his own language. Um, and when we take away their right to breed, we and we go for looks at, for the kennel club to get because the big breeders make big bucks versus structure and need. And um, you just get so many genetic issues like 
uh, golden retrievers are always very popular here. They're called cancer dogs. They're going to probably, most of them, get cancer. I've had German Shepherds my whole life. I don't have a German Shepherd, and I haven't for 15 years because I couldn't deal. I had one that had megasophagus. It should never have existed, that dog. That's a genetic condition. Yeah. Um, they have behavioral issues. They have health issues. They just, they have the sloping hips. And um, Kim Brophy talks a lot about street dogs. And I think in India and places like that, they're called streeties. And there's a documentary called Stray, not The Stray, which is a terrible movie made in Utah. So don't, don't watch that. It's called Just Stray about, I think it's Turkish dog, street dogs. And they follow a couple of the dogs. I think it was a Sundance film, which award winner, which is Sundance is from Utah. But they, I, I hate watching animal movies because it's usually horrible and the dog suffers. Or yeah, I normally can't watch them either. I'm like, my, yeah. I'd, I'd make my kids tell them whether the dog dies or not. It's and if, if, if they don't, then I can watch sort of. Yeah. I'm just not going to watch because I was like so many. I, I saw Old Yeller as a kid all, by no. myself <laughs> after school one day. That's just horrible. Anyway, so Stray, movie, the movie Stray is a documentary. They follow these dogs and there's very little fighting on these street dogs. They manage to avoid cars. We think that like when I was growing up in the States in the six, 70s, um, the dogs were free. They just, yeah. we were in suburbia. They bred who, they were neutered. They bred who they wanted to breed. So if you think about that, um, we're almost selecting now for problems because we're so focused on the beauty and the structure, not even the structure, not even the health, actually beauty pageants, which is what I think a lot of dog shows are. So you win because your dog is the prettiest or walks the best or whatever. Mostly it's, it's beauty, I think. And from my opinion, which I know I'll look forward to your angry emails about that, but that's my opinion. Um, we're not letting them choose to breed. Like an aggressive dog is not gonna last in the wild. And, and, it, and being aggressive takes too much energy for a dog that's living on the street. So, and, it, and it's also bred out. You know, it's just not, it's not productive for a species to just fight everything. The, the, they won't last and they're gonna get hurt themselves and get infections and probably die. So it just kind of fades out. So you don't have dog fights. Like they, they will scrap um, usually over food, over a resource, or maybe a mate, choice of mate. But we, come in as gods and said, you're breeding that one. You're breeding that one because exactly. I want a pretty yeah. dog. And we're, I think we're breeding reactivity. And, and robbing them of choice in, in many aspects. So both the breeding, also the, the choice of being able, like when, when they grow up, the choice of being able to avoid something or to, you know, walk away from something isn't there. I, there, there's another documentary on, I don't know if it's called, maybe it's even called dogs or dog or whatever on Netflix. And there's one dog that they follow that gets rescued from, uh, I don't know where, the Middle East somewhere. It's it's a husky or a malamute, some kind of sled dog that was living there. But the dog was walking itself, you know, like throughout the neighborhood, um, just walking with the kids over there. And then at home it would come... Um, sorry in the evening we come home to his guardian and the dog was so chill and so relaxed you know like zero reactivity or aggression and I was also wondering like is this does this have to do with the fact that the dog was just allowed to be you know like to to make make it, choices make choices yeah to make choices and and yeah sometimes like I, I feel like I, I in that sense feel guilty 
for or about my dog that I'm thinking like, yeah, where, how, how different could it have been for you? I know also that's also what I teach my clients. It's not useful to think that way um, because, you know, it is what it is. Uh, but still, like as like in general, to think about what we as as the human species are doing to dogs, I think it is useful to every now and then stop and pause and feel like, okay, what's what are we doing? That's the paradigm shift that these industry leaders are talking about because it's about agency. Giving we we remove all the dog's choices and we expect it to just sit there as as in general, sit there, be quiet. And basically, I, I had a line in my in the Midnight Dog Walkers that I just saw recently in rereading some stuff. It said, I said that the fate of mother dogs or bitches in, in the world, their care should be as elevated as a female human having a, a baby because we know that a stressed mother is going to have stressed kids, stressed puppies. What happens in utero is crucial. What happens three generations back is crucial to our dogs. Um, and so I wrote a line that said the care of a mother dog and her puppies is a feminist issue because they're not given much care, you know, especially God awful puppy mills. It's just, it's a hell on earth. And we're, we're basically saying to dogs, what we were told was told to minorities in this country and women shut up. I don't want to hear you and children, children are better seen than heard. heard. I mean, these are awful, awful things in our history. And now it's like women have some freedom. Minorities have fought for their rights. And who's left to, to switch and to say, and to control? It's a freaking dog, you know, who love their, their bread. They, they bonded with us 30,000 years ago for whatever reason. Yeah. And, and now we, we have stripped almost everything. And now they're now as a, as a unit or a species, We've taken away so much choice and agency that we're having massive problems. They're not fitting in with our, our lifestyle anymore. And so people call people like me and say, can you fix my dog? And it's kind of like when it's a situation where the genes are telling the dog what to do, then I'm like, I can't take the genes out of your dog. You know, maybe you shouldn't have gotten a herding dog when with your, you know, you work 12 hours a day and it's in its crate. This is a very brilliant mind. And you're, it's like keeping a kid in a crate. Would you do that? But we, we can do it to dogs because they can't speak. And they can't vote and they can't buy lobbyists. So to me, it's like one of the last constricted groups. And I think that's what I love about the paradigm shift in the industry is saying they have rights too. They have needs beyond what our needs are. They, um, Kim Brophy says every animal is a phenotype and they're gifted with skills from nature that work for that breed. You know, so like aggression will say, oh, that's so terrible on a dog if they show their teeth to they growl. I, they need that aggression in, in their world if, if we left them alone. They need to be able to warn each other back off. And their ritualized um, display of aggression that's in, we're aggressive. We're the most aggressive species. Um, and we have ways, that's what rituals are for and society is for and probably the church is for in some regard is to not, we can't just act everything everything we feel or we'd all be killing each other and we've taken that away from dogs and when I work with troubled dogs one of the things I say is you have to give the dog more choices because we stripped it and you're saying no all the time and who wants to live like that that's a dictatorship and that confuses people what do you mean more choices I'm going to just let him run up to another dog that he's growling and lunging at that's not the choice I'm talking about we're going to guide them 
to the choices that humans need, but the dog needs to make some choices between waking up and going to sleep. Like one of the best things I have, I have, you have a cattle dog and I have a hat, they're half cattle dog, half border collie brothers who were taken at five weeks from their mother. So, you know, pile on, pile on the issues, although they're, they're quite good. Don't really have any issues, just one car phobia, but um, we have a dog door and we live in a corner lot and we have a wooden wire fence so they can see through and they fly through that door. And um, we put them up like when UPS is coming around four or five <laughs> and people are coming home because that's the barking hour. But their, their ability to take themselves outside when they want and do their patrol because they think they're like they chase off magpies. They, they're very busy outside. Oh, and magpies, people come by yeah. and pet. That's people come by and pet Magpies them. and doves. <laughs> Or uh, d- uh, um, not doves, um, pigeons. Sorry, pigeons. Magpies are kind of the jerks of the bird world, although they're brilliant. I, I had always, a pet wild one. In, I always feel like you know they're flipping my dog one because they're kind of like, I don't care, you know, like I'm here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they're not scared, scared uh-uh. of the dog. So yeah, t- what you're talking about in the big picture is agency. We have got to give these. They're captive species. They're like. We, we know about enrichment from zoos. People have heard of that. You know, they've heard about a tiger behaving um, unnaturally in a cage where it just paces and paces and paces or an animal that might chew on its back leg or even bite its foot off. Like they, that's a stressed out animal because they're in captivity and they're not allowed to express their native, their natural um, genetic expression of self that now we've put into all these dogs. So dogs need to be able to express that. And when they can't, we're going we're gonna to do this. And so then we have to figure out a way to help the dog live as a natural dog, but live in our homes. And, and it works. It does work for many, many, many owners. It's just not working the way it used to. Because our lives have changed so much in the past 60 years. When I was growing up, the moms were at home in the 60s and 70s. That, that was starting to change. But now... Even if the mom is a stay-at-home mom, if they have kids, they're going off, you know, they have 50 activities a week yeah. to go to. Taxi so, driver. so nobody is really home anymore with the dog or we're all working from home. And then suddenly we stop working from home because COVID has died down. So um, enrichment is, is crucial. Um, Shay Kelly has a podcast. He's a British consult, um, behavior consultant and he has the canine enrichment Facebook group, which I highly recommend. Yeah, I don't know if you're in that. I'm in it already. Group, but because yeah. <laughs> enrichment is like we just want this again. Sh- sit down, and shut up, dog. Don't bother me. And so the dog is bored and captive in your house. And if you're not putting as much uh, attention on their brain and their needs, their internal needs as that specific dog, um, they're gonna make up their own stuff. Like my dogs the other day, we were watching a really good Netflix show. And my husband and I, that's the back bedroom and the dogs had the door open and I have rings so I can see what they're doing um, and hear them. And they got really quiet and we didn't notice that they were quiet for too long. And that's not a good sign with cattle cattle collie dogs. (laughs) And what they had done is I had a big rug. It's supposed to be king size, but it's like a six, four by six foot, um, pretty big rug that was actually a cover for a couch and it was made for dogs. So it's pretty much indestructible. They took it from one room and dragged it all through the house together and got it through the dog door and took it outside and ran a victory lap. Like they couldn't shred it because it was too strong. That's what they were going to do. 
So my husband goes outside and we take a break during the film and he walks in carrying the rug full of leaves. And I'm like, how did you do that? And so like a dog trainer geek, the next day I said, I told myself, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But I wanted to see how they did it because they would have to me cooperate to get that through the dog door. And because they also play tug at a ton. So I'm like, why didn't one tug it from the other and it's still in the living room? So I asked them, I brought the rug into the, oh. where the living room. I filmed it and said, show me. Well, Finn, who's the red healer and has more border collie in him than his full brother. Um, Cooper's a blue healer and he looks very much like a blue healer. He's got more genetic influence from the cattle dog side. Finn looked at me and looked at the dog door like, oh, okay, you want me to? And tried immediately to drag the dog, the rug through the door. Cooper thought he was they were playing tug. And so Finn got very, ups, not upset, but frustrated with his brother, like, you idiot. We're, this is where we take it through the dog door. And so finally, they, um, Finn got it. It's a really funny video because he looks at me like, my brother's an idiot. We we're, we're clearly have a plan here on the job. And finally, I go out, I leave the rug and I go outside and I start filming from there. Cooper runs out, does his own thing, chases the birds, forgot all about the rug. Finn runs out the door, looks at me, runs back in and pulls it out by himself and runs off with it. Like he understood that I was saying, you can take this, show me please. You know, because normally you wouldn't encourage that. No, Only a dog no, no. trainer would say, yeah. So that, that was very, that was very interesting behavior to me. And they, they have the agency to take stuff from inside the house, outside and bring, they bring sticks in, you know, they, I mean, they make choices. brilliant when you think about it. I mean, honestly, <laughs> but this is maybe, maybe a good segue sort of from you as the as dog trainer to you as dog guardian now that we're talking um about your dogs so what has shifted for you personally when you're like in your life with your dogs throughout the years yeah and particularly from the point of view as a trainer i think that's the most biggest shift for me personally versus just an owner because i've had dogs since i was i could walk um For me, it was a couple of things. Like when I was tr actively training and younger, I'm 56. Oh, now I'm 57. As of last month, I forgot. Um, I was really into, I, for lack of a better word, obedience. Like I've always been a force free. Well, back in the 80s, I had a prong collar on my Rottweiler because that's all we knew. There wasn't yeah. clicker training yet. Um, but I was never shocked and all that. I was always a bond was the most important thing to me with my dogs always I was just came out of the womb that way thank god so when I had these perfect border collies radar and echo to me they were perfect they were very they were from working dogs we lived on a Texas ranch when I had 100 acres when I got them they're very serious dogs they didn't play with toys you threw a ball and they just look at you like you get it I'm not gonna get it. they wouldn't fetch for any and I always wanted a dog who fetched so I even got they love sheep and we got them sheep and they love me And they didn't really care much about foods, but I cared about obedience and walking nicely on a leash and a five minute down stay, because that's what I thought as a trainer, you needed a demo dog. You know, like I could take those dogs anywhere, say place and put them on a mat and they just sit there. And I wasn't strict or mean and I had incredible, they were my heart and soul dog. Um, and they liked the obedience work. Those two dogs just, it made them happy to make me happy. The people who've had, very serious herding dogs know what I'm talking about. They're like, they live to work. That's what they were bred for. Um, so when the, those two passed away within six months of each other, 
I did the usual. I'm not going to get another dog and let's travel. <laughs> let's not be held down. And you tried that for how long? Like how long did it last? 60, 60 days at most. But during that time I was going to rescues, hurting dog rescues and meeting dogs. And the, the rescues here were very honest. Like this one pees in the house, this one bit a kid, you know, they, they thank God. And I just did not want a project. I've done that. <laughs> So I kept looking at this, uh, online and I wasn't going to really spend a lot of money on a dog. Like, I don't care if it's a mixed breed, um, if it's my favorite breeds. And I saw these six puppies that were so cute. They were um, half cattle dogs and half border collie. I get them home. I take two because the blue healer was the only one left. And I knew I wanted the, I call him white, the red one, because he's mostly white. My husband said, you're getting them both. And Cooper, the blue one, I always wanted a blue healer. He was the last one left. I'm like, I'm not leaving them because they were taken at five weeks old from their mother. I'm way too young. So I knew I could help them with my experience. Like these were not simple dogs. They're brilliant dogs, but they had emotional injury, a severe emotional injury. And you said you didn't want a project. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? But they were puppies. So I felt like I had a chance, you know, to different type of project. (laughs) Yes. And it was, it was, it was a ton of work. I mean, we were exhausted. We looked like new parents. Um, and it probably, I think that we helped each other, that we, they, it helped them to have each other. Like they're very close and tight now. I had already decided before I got them that if they end up fighting, because sometimes siblings do that and hurting each other, I would have to rehome one. Which one? I don't know. I had no idea. But I was willing to do that going in. But anyway, so when I got them, I had, was semi-retired from training. I wasn't interested. COVID hit. We got them in like August. And just time intensive, just showing them the world in a slow way. We slowed down their enrichment or socialization um, because of them being so young. COVID hit like January, February the next year. So I wasn't going out. I wasn't doing anything. I wasn't care. I didn't care if I had a demo dog. I cared a lot more 10 years ago. Like I felt it was my obligation to have a well-behaved dog that I could take anywhere. And a lot of trainers feel that way and maybe owners feel that we should to prove that we can have a well-mannered dog. But I wasn't in, I wasn't an obedience trainer. I wasn't a sports trainer. I was a behavior. I focused on behavior and trying to create peace in the house for the dog mostly. But now I, I try to do both species because you have to, because the owner pays the bills, right? It's their house. Um, they pay the mortgage. So when I got these little hooligans, um, I wasn't concerned about sit down or stay. So I didn't teach that. What was important to me were three things. We're in a neighborhood popular with kids riding their bikes all the time. Seniors, people walk by. We have a wooden wire gate so they could stick their little noses through. Um, corner lot. It's not that busy of a street, but plenty of people walk outside in Utah. And I said, I wanted them to like people. They don't have to, I'm not going to force them to go to every person that they see. But if a kid sticks their hand through that fence, which they can do, I don't want a dog to bite. So we worked a lot on that. And um, kids have kids would help us. We'd ask them. Could, could you throw the ball for them? Could you give them this cookie? Throw the cookie for them. Um, and we have girls that come every summer that stay here and they just sit by the fence and pet them. So like, like people, expect a loving connection with people and like other dogs. But again, I don't force them on any dog, but I just did not want a reactive dog. And they, they needed that more than most dogs because they didn't have their siblings. They only yeah. had each other. They just certainly didn't have their mother. So I had puppy play dates um, for free where I said I evaluated each dog individually because they're different play styles and different sizes. And um, one by one, we introduced them off leash in my yard. And I, and, and 
I offered free training if they would bring their dog over while, while we were there. Like, ask me anything or email me and I'll, and I'll help you. We did that for six months of their lives, like right before COVID, actually, um, twice, a, twice a week. And I, I, they needed to be off leash. And we did interrupt them if they got too carried away. But those other people's dogs taught my dogs what I could not because they were taken from their mother. And even if not, even if they had a perfectly wonderful childhood or puppyhood and they came to me at nine or 10 weeks, other dogs have to teach other dogs that while the brain is still forming. So the other thing was a recall because that's life and death. I need you to, you know, if they ever got out, which I think they have once, they're three, almost three now, I need you to come back to me. So they do those things great, but they'll never be a demo dog. They jump on people because we didn't have people come to the house. So for two years, right? Because it goes, yeah. they'll jump on people. They pull us down the street, but they are the happiest, most well-adjusted dogs I have ever had. Like they're, they're playful, they're silly. And that was not a guarantee with them. So because of their situation, um, taken so young. So I put all of my energy just because those two dogs showed up at my in my life and I was exhausted as a trainer and I did not give a crap about sit down stay. I just, I was not interested in teaching that. Like I didn't have a use for it. They naturally learned to sit because I reinforced it, but I didn't teach an active sit. They just started offering it and I started reinforcing it. They know a down, um, but the things that are important to me, they do beautifully. Like to not have a dog that's reactive is, is, and it's so hard to find now. That's another reason I went yeah. for puppies um, because I've 75% of owners say they have a behavior problem and I don't want a behavior problem. The only behavior problem I have with them is that they're absolutely car phobic. And that's because it was an old school veterinarian. I love veterinarians, not this one. He took them from their mother and I don't know why she could have died or not been nursing them. I, they breed them a lot because I've seen more litters. Working dogs from Northern Idaho to Southern Utah at five weeks, threw them in the backyard where they fought over kibble because Cooper, the blue one, was, would have been a massive resource garter. Um, fleas and worms and no human interaction in a backyard. So they had the trauma of being taken, in the car. thrown in a backyard. We were very sick when we got them home. Didn't feel well. I have the cutest little pictures of them. We couldn't even really pick them up because they bit so much. That was their response to everything. Like not aggressive, just exploring the world through their teeth, but yeah. way more than a normal puppy. But they were the cutest little things. But even that now when I look at their pictures, their ears are forward and they're tentative. Even after a month or two with us, like, what are you doing? I don't trust you. Wow. They trusted each other. So I, I, how did I get off on that? I think you asked how, how my training, what my mind has shifted yeah. versus training, training versus happiness. Like these dogs crack me up every single day. And I don't know if another owner would think it was funny what they're doing. Like you can't dance. They hate the vacuum cleaner. They hate shoveling snow. They act like the snow, snow shovel process is killing you and they want to kill the snow shovel. So we just use management for those particular cattle dog and herding dog antics. And it doesn't bother me. Now, if I had a kid, we don't have kids. And if you were shoveling and the dog went, for the shovel, shoveling snow and the kid was knocked down or the kid was bitten because it was right there, then you have a problem. But the, I, the answer would still be the same, put the dog up. Yeah. Don't have the dog and the kid and the snow shovel. And so we just work around their silliness. I call it silliness. Other people probably would call it a be problem, like dragging stuff out the dog door. We just, yeah. anything we don't want them to drag out, it's out of their reach. 
Yeah. And that's kind of what I, what I preach more or less that the circumstance can be the same, but it's all about how you look at it. So if you look at it as silliness or cattle dog or cattle collie, I should say in your case, cattle collie antics, Mm -hmm. that gives you a whole different perspective on the situation. And if you think, oh, they're misbehaving or they're doing something that they shouldn't be doing. But do you think it would have been um, like the result would have been the same? Because you said I was kind of like done with training. And that's kind of also something that contributed to me, um, you know, not doing the whole sit and obedience thing. If that hadn't been the case, would you still have made the shift? Or was that a big part of it? And maybe also like, why were you done with training? Yeah, (laughs) that'll be my third book. (laughs) Um, training is particularly working in behavior but any kind of any animal welfare or any job it could be grooming dog walking dog sitting veterinarian um, it's it's a difficult job to begin with because so many different reasons but particularly when you're acutely aware of canine behavior like we were saying earlier our canine body language you can see the dogs saying that they're suffering when the owner can't necessarily see it. And to see a dog suffering and then being punished for being who they are, you know, just compounds it. And as a behaviorist, you'll get calls like on a Thursday, you better, you need to call me tomorrow. Or I'm putting my dog down on Friday. That's A, I can't fix it in 24 hours. Mm-hmm. And B, that's, you, you know, I'm not going to work with that kind of person because there, there are no guarantees because they're individual dogs. Um, but so I think I was burnt out from two things, all the behavior cases. And sometimes, you know, we, which I think we're going to talk about here in a bit is we, I would recommend behavioral euthanasia. As somebody who spent my life protecting dogs, that's a very, like, until I had my own troubled, highly troubled, genetically induced problematic dog, I was a trainer who believed we could save them all. And I kind of put some blame on the owners, like, well, you shouldn't gotten the dog. You know, especially ones will say, I'm, I'm having a baby in two months and I just got a, a puppy. I'm like, <laughs> now you have two puppies, the human puppy and the, um, instead of, you know, trying to help the situation. So I did, I did some of that judgmental stuff that trainers can do, which I don't do anymore. Um, and because I had my own troubled dog and I couldn't, I couldn't solve the problem because you can't change genes at, at some point it, when the genes are messed up or something internally in the dog is so physically messed up. Um, so what was the question? Um, how I, how I made the shift. Yeah. Like if you would have made the shift, if if you hadn't been burned out and then, and then sort of like what caused that, because I think maybe just coming off of that and something you said earlier, also like, you know, thinking that you could save them all. I think also for a lot of, um, dog guardians, it's like, they have this idea that if they only train enough or if they only knew enough or if they only were a trainer themselves then they would be able to save their dog and maybe that's true for for some dogs i don't know whether it's useful actually to be thinking that but in and i think this is also what you were alluding to that's probably not even the case like you can't probably fix everything just by training so like what's your take on on that yeah well, part of it is the human expectation. You know, what? why do you get a dog and what do you expect of this dog? Um, like uh, for many years, and I hope it's changing, but changing slowly, we expected, our owners expected their dog to like every other dog. 
and their dog to like every other person. But we don't expect that of ourselves. You know, we have enemies, we have fights, we have scraps, like verbal scraps, hopefully. Um, that's just part of being a human is that we're, you know, get mad. We have tempers. Um, and you're not being realistic as a human if you say, I never get mad at anyone and I love everyone. Well, there's some people that are jerks and are, are that are cruel to you or cruel to your family. So um, that's, that's a very natural behavior in a dog. Um, I don't know where I was going with this one. Either. Come save them all uh, if there's only enough oh, save them. Oh, yeah. Um, human expectations. So hopefully we've moved away from all every dog has to like every dog because we know more about that. We know there's a curve that most dogs in the mid middle age years don't like dogs as, don't, as much as a puppy you know, might yeah. want to play with another dog. So hopefully we've stopped saying my dog has to like every dog. My dog has to like every person. Um, it's that human expectation that we put on the dog that causes a lot of the heartache. Because if you think about dog, we think of them as our best friends. We call them that. Yeah. Um, and it's kind of like a betrayal to us if the dog A doesn't like us. Like we're meeting somebody's dog on the street and they pull back or they growl or like, why don't you like me? And then sometimes we'll try even harder. Um, it, so it's, it's a betrayal for us when a dog has a behavior problem. Like you're, you're Fido, you're Rover, you're my best friend. And I had all these envisions. We're going to do this sport together. We're going to go walk the street every day. I'm going to start hiking with you. And then the dog starts attacking other dogs. Um, it, it can feel very emotionally like a, a betrayal to us because of what we put on the dog. Yeah. And so the more we back off. Yeah. The more we back off and say, this is the dog in front of me. You know, my, the two that I have now, I call them hooligans all the time because they're just, still, they're jokesters. They, I mean, they look in their face and they look like they're smiling and laughing to me. And they like to like, I mean, almost pull pranks on us is for lack of a better term. And they're so different from my very serious border colleagues that I had before that just like on hikes in Colorado, when I had Echo, the female, she would stay in the mountains, gorgeous mountains. She would stay right behind my heel. And I never asked her to do that. Off leash, 10 other dogs. All the other dogs are roaming and running and chasing and smelling and sniffing. She was walking right behind. And sometimes I'd be like, where is she? Because she was so close, like codependent. And the other trainers I was walking with, they'd say, be a dog, Echo. Come on, try to be a dog. And, and that's what she wanted. I was her safe place. She didn't give crap about other dogs. She didn't want to sniff. She didn't want to run. She wanted to be as close to me as possible. And so I didn't change that. And I was codependent on her as well. I said we were very codependent emotionally. These dogs are not as codependent because they have each other and they play with each other. Radar and Echo siblings also did not play with each other or anything. They play with toys and we did a lot of separating, but um, it is about accepting who the dog is in front of me. And that, that's one thing that we're, that's a paradigm shift that trainers and behaviors are asking owners to do. What is the dog right in front of you? Your last dog might have been your best friend and slept with you every night. And this dog you have might be a little aloof. Well, do we do you call us and ask me to change that? That's his personality. Or do we work around the dog's personality? You know? Well, I think a lot of people would want to change that. <laughs> want to change the personality? They would want to change that and, and, and for the dog to be less aloof. You know, like if they were really honest with themselves, which I think is also okay to go and say, that's what I hoped for. And every now and then I'm kind of a little sad that that's not what I have. 
And then for them to still be able to see their dog as who they are and love them for that. Yeah. I was going to say, um, it, it can still just be like, yeah, okay. I had that expectation and that, can, I guess it's okay. If that feels just a little bit sad that that didn't come true. Yeah. Like I was talking about how it can feel like a betrayal. If your dog bites you, you're like, you're my best friend. Why did you just bite me? And then our tempers can come into play. And we say that, you know, that's a bad dog and you jerk the collar or you get a trainer who only has a hammer and every problem is a nail. They don't understand really what's going on inside the dog. So they just shut down behavior through punishment or fear or the threat of pain. Um, And so then the dog is shut down. But that's not, uh, I think it's Andrew Hale who says it's not a um, self-regulating, calm, or well-adjusted dog. It's a it's behavior that has been shut down so hard that the dog's afraid to move, which is, sounds like a terror camp to me. I mean, that's no way for a dog to live. Like, I'm not going to have any behavior because everything I do, you zap me on my neck, or you yank me, or you pop my collar, or you kick me, or do all these horrible things that humans can do. And we say there, an expression of dog training that punishment um, punishment proves to the punisher that, that it works, that punishment works. It makes a punisher, it doesn't make you happy. Nobody really wants to hit a dog, I hope. But we think that I smacked that dog and he stopped doing it. Well, it doesn't teach the dog anything. It doesn't teach the dog why. It doesn't teach the dog another behavior. It doesn't create safety. That's one of the things I write about over and over and over and Modern dog trainers are saying you have to have a sense of safety for your dog. Like when we're talking about accepting the dog in front of you, I was thinking about kids. Like you have two kids? Yeah, two boys. I, we, I say I forgot. I forgot to have kids. We don't have any kids. But I can imagine the same expectation of a parent. Like I'm going to have a straight A student and they're going to become a lawyer and a doctor. Well, you got to wait till that kid gets there because they may have zero interest in that. And, and I think healthy parents say, this is who this kid is. I wanted him to be a lawyer. He does not want to be a lawyer. He hates it. So I'm not going to push him in that way. And that's how I feel like it is with dogs. You get a dog for a reason. And if that reason expectation isn't met, then there's conflict. It doesn't mean we can't resolve it or reduce it. Um, But just, just admitting to us, to ourselves, I thought I was getting something different. And I think that's understanding the genetics of the dog that you get, even if it's a mixed breed, you can either do a DNA test or kind of, you know, a lot of us have an idea what the dog is. Sometimes it's very wrong when you get the DNA back, but, um, you know, just accepting the self, the the animal in front of you doesn't mean, and I want people to hear me say this, that the dog is eating your trash and knocking your kid down and biting the neighbor. That's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying we have to guide it to fit into our lives in a way that also works for the dog. And that's yeah. the missing piece. It hasn't been for the dog. It's all us. Totally. But I think there's so like the fact that you brought up kids, there is, or there is, there are so many um, parallels to raising kids and, and raising dogs. But I think also like when I just think back to my kids, what helps me always is just sort of to be curious. You know, I look at my kids and and I come from, like on both sides, like, and my husband as well, um, from a long family of like engineers. So we're all like sciencey folks. And my oldest son, um, he's, he sort of had to sort of try and figure out like, it's a bit of a different system in Holland than it is in the U S but like what direction he's gonna want to go in. So either more 
um, science-based or uh, the social sciences like um, geography, history, economics, those, those kind of things. And he loves that side way more. And he, so he chose to, to go in, into that direction. And I just love it. You know, I'm, I'm looking at him and I'm thinking, how cool is it that you're not thinking like, oh, my parents and my grandparents and my great grandparents, they were all in science. That's probably what I have to do too. No, he's just, you know, him doing it, like choosing what fits him. And I'm just looking at him and going like, how cool are you for doing that? And I think that's the same thing for dogs. It's like just looking at them with a bit of the curiosity. Like I, I wonder like who you're going to be, or I wonder who you are. Or I wonder what your, um, what makes you tick like as, as a dog. And we were talking about this a little earlier as well about like dog sports and activities that you want to do with your dog, that they have to um, match their personality like you might want to do agility with them but if the dog doesn't like it then you know like are you going to force it and the same like the other way around like um find something that you also enjoy doing because if you don't love doing it with your dog then that's not going to work either but um i just because i got off on a tangent again like that happens a lot in this podcast <laughs> Um, but but coming back to sort of the original question, do, like, do you think everything is fixable? Can everything be trained out? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. And I did once believe that because I, I, I came out of rescue and I was taking very stressed dogs out of shelters that I knew nothing about. Um, and this was in the 2000s. Well, like from 2000 to 2010, when we moved away from Texas and we had a big ranch, so I had a lot of space. Um, back then, I, I certainly believed it wholeheartedly because I saw it every single day with all the, I mean, some of the times they were puppies. We, you know, we didn't know much about the puppy brain forming as we know now, back in the year 2000, <laughs> it seems so long ago now. But um, so I, I also was careful in who I chose, which dog I chose. Like I didn't know it, but I was already understanding body language enough that I'm not going to pick the one that's huddled in the corner and just absolutely terrified because we were getting family pets. Like we didn't go by breed, although we certainly got a lot of border collies <laughs> herding dogs and, and shepherds, which originally were herding dogs. Um, but we went by temperament. And so I was looking without even like being able to articulate it, open mouth, relaxed mouth, a wiggly body, even in, and they, they would certainly exhibit stress because a shelter is a very, very stressful for even the happiest dog and they had lost their home you know maybe for whatever reason they might have been astray and maybe never lived in a house um but they didn't know where they were you know and suddenly stuck in a very large loud place so uh, those dogs back then um very rarely did we put down a dog for behavior reasons but the group i was with made that decision as the group um i was the person who went to onto all the shelters especially rural uh, which there are a lot of herding dogs in rural communities in Texas, and I was choosing the dogs. Um, so I wasn't part of the decision if a dog needs to be put down, and I was never asked to because I never got a dog that I had to put down out of 400 dogs. Oh. Uh, some were questionable, even as puppies, but we worked with them. And that's where I first started training is we'd, we'd help the dog. Um, but there were four or five that I can recall that as a group that other people pulled, um, not blaming them at all, circumstantial that they put down because of serious bites, either to fighting another dog and hurting that dog 
or um, biting a person. And their philosophy was, which I agree with, there's too many dogs in shelters that are going to be euthanized tomorrow, especially in Texas, and it's still bad there, that will never bite a person. Um, and that's the dog we want. I mean, we also, as traders, we say, if it has teeth, it can bite. And certainly in the, any situation, a dog with teeth can bite you, even if they love you and the bond is there, like a pain episode. Dog's been hit by a car and you pick it up and it bites you. Um, so because of my experience in rescue and because I'm stubborn and because I love dogs so deeply that I became a be very interested in behavior thinking, I'm going to help stop this flow of massive amounts of unwanted dogs coming into the shelter to try to help them as a puppy. Because I saw it, the puppies that we that were a little sketchy, maybe they're played too rough. We could help the puppies in particular. And like I said, even if there was a behavior issue, like I was pulling German shepherds, which can be naturally kind of a guarding behavior of the human mm -hmm. or the property. Yeah. Um, we helped those dogs or we found them the, a right, the appropriate home for them, like a kid, a house with no kids in it and a, you know, retired couple or whatever it was. We found homes for almost like a one-eyed dog or a three-legged dog um senior dogs it was a it was actually an amazing time and now I, I look back on that time and that's when I did believe yes we can help them all because it was happening in my real real life but that was 22 years ago in the 2000s and dogs have changed genetically we have changed the dogs in that time I think like I said I think we're breeding for reactivity we're breeding for problems health problems and emotional problems in dogs because of the, our breeding practices. So, um, and that, that came up and, and hit me in the face with a German shepherd um, puppy that I knew the, I knew the breeder in Texas. I was in Colorado by then. So this person that I knew in Texas was, this is what changed me from my own personal experience. And this was in about 2013 or 14. So seven or eight years ago. Um, it was my first experience of my own getting a dog that has genetically problems that I could not fix, that a veterinarian could not fix, that all my training, and I, I went into it thinking, oh, I can help this dog <laughs> um, because she was the rut. So I watched this litter being born online because Facebook was the thing. She had a lot of puppy videos. She was doing all the things right as a breeder should do, like it had the dogs in the house and not for God's yeah. sake in the backyard, socializing them. There was a male puppy who always noticed the camera. And I asked if I could, I was going to buy that one. Um, this was her first litter. Um, the sire had some, I, I don't know if the sire had been shown yet, but the bitch had, came from a Schutzen kennel. So all of the, her history, Schutzen yeah. one, two, and three. Yep. Yeah, working lines mixed with a fluffy, sweet, supposed male German Shepherd. I wanted the male because he paid the most attention to me and I just fell in love with him. And I talked about him so much that I think I turned the breeder <laughs> to wanting that dog. She kept him for herself. And I said, well, that's the only one I want. I'm not willing to spend thousands of dollars. I, I don't know. I just like that. Particular, I liked his behavior that I was seeing as a young kid, even though that changes as they grow. And so she said, she called me a few weeks later and said, I, I can, I'll give you the rent for free. And she's got great drive. She's going to make a great working dog. Because I had a ranch in Colorado and I did, you know, did a lot of different things with my dogs. And um, people misunderstand drive <laughs> and hyperactivity. And this dog was hyperactive and the runt. And that, that has consequences. The runt doesn't get enough nutrition in utero. And even when it's born, that's why it's little. So I get this female German Shepherd. Um, the, I didn't know the breeder. She was a friend of a friend. But I had met her. 
I she wanted to fly me the dog. It was the last of the litter that was still there. <laughs> red flag, red flag, red flag. And I said, no, I'll go get it. So we did this whole long thing where she brought it halfway to New Mexico and I went to New Mexico and brought it home. I took Echo with me, which was my female border collie, my codependent heart dog who had trained countless puppies. Like I could trust her. She would, she would gently correct the puppy in a way that a dog needed to do that I could not do to help shape puppies, yeah. my client's puppies. Echo hated this dog the second she saw her. And I had a crate and I put the puppy in the crate. Get the dog home. All the dogs didn't like this dog. Red flag, red flag, red flag. But it's a puppy. You, go, I went all that way. It's a German Shepherd. It's a gorgeous dog. Very small because she was the front. So things, you know, I introduced her to the the pack or the, I don't use pack, but yeah. my, I had four or five dogs. Your other including dogs. The shot. <laughs> yes, to the other family members. Um, and she never played nicely. She always o- overstimulated. But what started, what I started noticing in her, and it took me a while, is that um, she chased bugs and it was wintertime when she was a puppy. So, or maybe like late winter, early spring. So, so there were some bugs like flies and we had horses. So I take her down to the barn and I was like, one day I was, and I read about this in the book, I'm weed eating or whatever. I'm working for four hours down at the barn thinking, and I didn't have another dog with me. I was already kind of separating her because she was so aggressive in her play with them and they didn't like her. <laughs> so spending more time by buyers, you know, all these red flag, red flag, red flag. So um, I noticed that she had played the four hours. And I'm thinking she's entertaining herself. But what she was doing was air snapping at bugs that were not there. And oh. I didn't, I wasn't paying that attention. And that's a problem that some dogs have. They, they bite in imaginary flies is what we say. So then I started watching that behavior. And anytime we had a fenced in backyard, we had a 40 acre ranch, you know, normal size backyard. And if I put her back there, she immediately started air snapping. And every now and then she'd get a bug. Like I remember once her face was swollen because she got like a wasp or something that stung her. So she would be successful, but it's the problem was when there were no bugs. And if she went out at night, unless I had a light on and there were like moths or something, she was calmer, much calmer. So she was seeing things that were not there and trying to get them. Um, And then at probably about four months of age, I was already separating her because again, my, my herd, my group did not care for her, which I should have respected their knowledge. They knew it before I did something was wrong. My husband and I, we had a back porch and doors here and doors here. And I slept with her in the room by myself and put the other dogs in the living room, which changed our entire dynamic. Yeah. Yeah. They were used to sleeping on the bed with me, but I didn't already trust her. So I let, um, her name was Zimmy in the book. I let Zimmy out the back. It was two or three in the morning. My husband had stayed up late in the living room and he had let our senior dog named Lacey, who was like a Sheltie and very arthritic, um, let her out. And I didn't know that she was out there too. She was a black dog. So I hear like growling and stuff. So I opened the door really fast thinking, oh no, another dog's outside. And um, I was opening the door for Lacey and all of my, the senior dog, all of my training and shelter work paid off because I'm still not awake. It's like 2 a.m. And I see Zimmy, this four-month-old puppy, attack Lacey, the senior dog, like full-on attack. And I, she had a collar, and I just reached and got her, luckily, before she did any damage and lifted her up by the collar. So then I thought, well, Lacey's old and walking weird. and Maybe that's what triggered like it. Or... I made up stuff. I, I found the answer. Oh, it's because of this. It's because of that. Fast forward, as she grew up, I separated her more and more and more because she was starting to growl hackles would go up or she would be 
like I tried, my dogs were all off leash because they had excellent recalls on our ranch and on the private road to our ranch. Um, so I'd let them run. And I used to let her play with them, but she couldn't handle it. Like it was too much for her brain to handle. And this is a puppy puppy, four or five, four months old. I was going to say four months um, to be attacking full on is, seems kind of young. It's not, it's not normal. And the, the air snapping was continuous. Um, like she was trying to provide, I think, relief for herself. You know, almost like some, some autistic children rock like this. Mm-hmm. And I think that, I don't know, but I assume that they're trying to maybe self-calm. Or, or the world, the sensory world is too much for them. So they're just shutting everything out. And I think the air snapping, I guess, I don't know, was trying to self-soothe in a weird way that was abnormal and obsessive. So I finally decided she doesn't have leash freedom anymore because she's over the top. Her, her whale eyes, like fearful mixed with aggression as a puppy with my very well-trained dogs that I use to help aggressive dogs. Like they're not fighters. Um, so I would put her on leash and we'd let her run around like a long line and she could not emotionally handle it. She would just drool. Her eyes were popping out of her head and it really was a conflict for her. Like she wanted to attack, but she was too little. And so she would try to self, I guess, I mean, it's just, I mean, it was out of control reactivity to the level I had never seen. And I knew that she had never been in a fight. Um, nothing bad had happened to her. So I went to, I took to, my friend had a training center where I was working and I, I took him to the puppy class, took her to puppy classes. I think I went to one, same thing, just on her feet like this, ears forward, hard eyes, drooling, shaking. Like she didn't want to play with those other puppies. She wanted to kill them. And it was over, like she couldn't hear me. She was over threshold. And that's very abnormal. Puppies can get really excited and you might have trouble recalling them, but this was obsessive and she wanted to fight. Like I've, I've worked with fighting pit bulls that were bred to fight. That's, she was bred to fight. Um, at least that's what I was saying. So I, I started working with behaviorists and veterinarians, um, maybe at eight months old. Even though you were I, kind of the expert yourself as well. Yeah. I, I, well, I wanted her on medication. I thought that might be to yeah. calm down the brain because I used to tell clients if their brain is on fire, yeah. if the neural pathways are not connecting, uh, we, I can't help that dog until I can calm the brain down first and foremost. And medication had worked for several of my clients. So I remember, I think she was six months old. And then I think about it, my vet said, I need to research. I don't know if I can put a six month dog, six month old dog on Prozac. And so Red she flag. called some other, <laughs> yes, there were so many. So she got on Prozac and nothing worked. We tried, you know, you have to try different medications. Mm-hmm. She was either completely asleep like a zombie. And that's the only time she wasn't chasing the imaginary bugs. Or she was even more agitated. Like, it, I, I worried for my other four or five dogs that if she got a hold of one of them because they were older than her, she would tear them up. Um, so I started sleeping with her in the bedroom by myself, keeping her in the backyard by herself. Um, I didn't go to puppy classes anymore because it was too much. Like, the world was too much for her brain. Even though we lived on a 40-acre farm with no other cars or people. Just in the whole bug thing, let's see. So I had the bright idea that um, I was getting into nose work and became a nose work instructor. And I have seen nose work work in terms of be, having a dog focus. Once you teach them how to find hunt for the scent, yeah. um, can, they can block out other stimuli. So I'm still, so I got into nose work. She actually passed an ORT through nose work, which is the first, you know, they have to, you have to pass it first to prove that the dog can find the scent and then you can go on and get titles. 
I was stunned. She growled at the judges. She lunged, at the, which is a disqualification. She growled at every single dog, but she found she was able to concentrate and get the scent. So I thought maybe she could be a search and recovery dog, but of course we're going to have to muzzle her because she's going to kill the person when she finds them. She was reacting to people by then. If she, if you didn't meet her in the first four months of her life, you were, you were a threat to her, including the veterinarian. Um, I took her into the vet and uh, this was a very scary episode. She was probably eight months old, definitely muzzled because I knew by then that she didn't like strangers and that was anyone that she had not already met. Even though I did all the socialization, it was not a lack of socialization. Even though I pulled back, I was like taking her to the airport. I was having friends over. We were having play dates. It, she got the socialization that I've given every other dog in my life. She just couldn't handle it at all. She could not handle the world. So when I took her to my vet in Durango, muzzled, I said to the vet, please just don't make eye contact with her. <laughs> she doesn't like it. Um, I don't think, you know, I didn't really think she was going to attack a person. So the vet's behind her, not looking at her like this. And I like, feel because we, we, we're going to try probiotics because she had messy poops all the time. And sometimes if their stomach hurts, often there is a pain issue. Yeah, we were trying everything. She was already on Prozac and a couple of other drugs. So the vet, the dog's sitting, I have a leash. She's got a muzzle. Zimmy leans back like this and looks at the dog and her body becomes stiff. Muzzle punch the vet with her, with her muzzle on, like in the face. And if, that, if I had not had that muzzle, she would have bitten that veterinarian in the face. And so I yanked her because I was, I was horrified, not only as a trainer, but just this is, this is not good. The dog went and laid down and stared out the window like nothing had happened. She wasn't stressed. She wasn't scared. She just wanted to bite the vet in the face. Like, don't touch me. So did you she was, come, like come up with an, in a sense, an excuse for that? Like, oh, it's probably because a vet visit is stressful for any dog because there's all the smells of the blood and it's a weird surroundings and da, 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 all of that. I think I would have if I hadn't. By then, eight or nine months, I've been watching her behavior escalate, escalate, and, and her trying to attack a senior dog at four months of age. Mm -hmm. And the stranger danger just became intense. You know, she'd see a person and it was vigilant. She was hyper vigilant. Even if there was one trainer that she knew as a puppy and she loved that person. And that was it. Except I did the imaginary thing that we do. I'm going to go live by myself with this dog in a mountain high. <laughs> in a cabin high on a mountain, although I was already on 40 acres by my, with my husband. What I was going to ask travel. you, like your, your world was getting very small because of this dog. I'm imagining. It totally disrupted my wonderful dogs that, um, I had to make sure like I double, I double lock, lock doors. If I had to leave her in the house, because I thought if she gets through a door, I'm going to come home to dead, dead dogs. And so my echo, my heart dog lost two years of sleeping with me on the bed, which that I regret more than anything, because I was operating under the belief that we can save them all. And I have the skills, not as an arrogant person, because I asked other trainers all over the country. I asked veterinary behaviorists. I took her to veterinary behaviorists. I asked every veterinarian I ever knew. Maybe we just don't have the right drug. We need to calm the brain down. I'm pretty sure it's something is wrong with her brain. So meanwhile, while all of this is happening, I finally decide, but I always tell owners, if you can meet the parents, please meet the parents. Like if you're getting a puppy mm -hmm. from a breeder versus a shelter or God, please don't get them from pet stores because they come from puppy mills. Um, 
if the breeder won't let you see the parents, there's a problem, that red flag. Um, I would, even if they say the sire lives somewhere else, I would say I'd like to see them both or a video of the sire, the sire interacting yeah. with other dogs. I want to see where the dog was born. Was it in the house? Was it in the kennel outside? Is this a breeding operation? Um, I didn't meet the parents because they were in Houston and I was in Colorado and I trusted the dog breeder who I really didn't know. We were friends of friends. So I started to, she gave me all the paperwork um, because like I said, the, the mother dog was from a Schutzen, I think, um, puppy mill. All of the dogs had Schutzen, one, two, and three titles. Well, what about their temperaments? You know, yeah. they were so focused on that. So I looked it up and it's a horrible, horrible kennel. I cannot remember the name or what state it was in. Some Midwestern state, horrible complaints. My dog died. My dog attacked this dog. I paid you $5,000 for this dog. So the mother dog was very expensive. For some reason, it was in her paperwork that she was brought over from Germany at like 12 months of age or, or no, I think 16 months and was pregnant on the plane and gave birth to the puppy I got on the plane and talk about That's scary <laughs> and yeah at 16 months yeah. she was an oops she was way too young yeah yeah so the dogs begin a highly stressed out mother dog highly that was forced to be a Schutzen dog I think because that's all they cared about that's why they sold their dogs I think like 20 or 30 thousand dollars actually um gets with this Houston lady who doesn't have experience breeding German shepherds, working German shepherds. Um, the father came from um, a show family and he was very calm. And I saw pictures of both parents because I didn't get to meet them, but I saw videos. I didn't see anything that was a red flag in the parents. Um, like he was running around with a bunch of other German shepherds outside and he was unneutered and he seemed, he seemed like the calm one. The mother was a little uptight, I would say. <laughs> But she wasn't eating the puppies or anything. You know, she was a good mom, but stressed. She was stressed. okay. Find out later that the, my puppy was born on a plane, and um, that that young male dog that I wanted, the boy, that to me seemed so people interested in people, and that's why I was wanted that dog. The father, she kept it. The breeder kept that dog. Um, I was no longer friends with this person, Facebook friends. But she came home, and the father attacked the son when the sun was about a year and a half blood all over the house. And I know this because she put it on Facebook and people sent it to me. So the calm father, which was the calmest one, attacked the sun. And I got in touch with um, two other people who had puppies. I don't know. I think from that mutual friend is yeah. how that happened. One was sent back from a young college girl. They flew the dog to it. And he same exact trajectory as my dog. Um, and so the, the, breeder said I'll take it back she had to pay for it to sh she had to pay for the dog ship it back I don't know if her money was refunded but that um when I had my veterinarian report veterinary behaviors report that was like 10 pages of all of her problems and what everything we had tried he even wrote in there do not use force do not use shock collar he put it in bright red uh, because he felt adamant this will make this problem much worse in case a shock collar trainer is listening no I've trained on shock collar I went to a Schutzen school I would never put a shock collar on a shock collar on any dog, but particularly a behavioral problem. That's like shocking an autistic kid. It's just, it's disgusting. But he put in his thing, do not use punishment. It will make it worse. Her problem's worse. I did finally call the breeder and say, I've seen all these problems and I didn't know about the other puppies yet. 
Um, I didn't know that she had rehomed the mother and it came back twice. And I think it was finally put down the mother. Um, all these things an owner needs to know and a good prospective owner would ask. And I didn't, and I knew better. I just fell in love with the puppy. I always, I love German Shepherds. That's my breed. And I believed I could fix it. Yeah. Uh, she said she would take the dog back. I had to fly her there and she was going to use a shot collar and that would solve it. And I said, right now, this dog is mine. It's not yours. And I'm not sending it to your home to use a shot collar. So I'm going to keep the dog. And so that was it. We never spoke again. But it's just not going to do that to a dog. That's just, I just, that I won't do it. Even if it was a healthy, perfectly healthy, mentally stable dog, this dog was not mentally stable. Anyway, long story short, I even tried her on a search and rescue team because with a muzzle. With a muzzle. Because yeah. she was so good at it. Like I barely, tra- like we would do some, my friend had a big 500 acre ranch and my husband and I would take her by there by herself. I used to take all my dogs um, and run off leash where he would hold on to Zimmy by her harness and I would go run and hide. And then he'd say, go find her. And she found me every single time, no matter what the wind was doing, no matter how far I went. So she was really good at finding that human scent. And she came from working lines. So I thought to myself, well, if I put a muzzle on her or maybe a long line, um, there was a children's program for troubled teens in the area and they, they would go camping in like summer stuff and that's, they were he- healing them in nature kind of program. Yeah. And they would have, uh, they call them a runner. Um, troubled kid would just run into the woods and get, you know, for whatever reason. And they wanted a dog on staff to go find the troubled kid because it, you know, it could get really cold at night. They could fall off a cliff. It was dangerous for them to run in the wood, in the mountains like that. But you're having visions so of Simi being that dog. <laughs> because I knew she could find people. And I took her on a very windy day. I almost canceled. It was so windy. We did like four or five finds of kids hiding or they, it was the camp employees. The, mm-hmm. They were adults found every single one. <laughs> she would get them and just start knock them to the ground and growl and, you know, like kind of kill them. She found them. So we, I decided this is too dangerous. This is, if a muzzle breaks, this is not, and it's a scared kid, you know, first you'd have yeah. to be on a long line forever. And you just can't, they have to like the human that they're finding if they're finding live humans, you know, like it could be an Alzheimer's patient that might hit the dog or whatever, or somebody Mm -hmm. drunk. It's not going to work. And that was one of my last things that and moving by myself to a cabin in the woods, which is stupid because I was in a cabin on 40 acres. My husband was traveling a lot. She did accept him because um, even though he was came and go, came and went because she met him in that three months span. I also was already seeing problems. So probably about five months. I started putting out feelers that that imaginary person who lives, he or she lives by herself, by himself, has no other dog, has no friends. And basically you without the dogs and the husband. (laughs) Yes. And I found a man and he, he came and he, he, she liked him and he had a very hard, long job. And he said, I don't have friends, (laughs) red flag, (laughs) red flag. The only thing is my mother comes out once a year and she stays with me for three or four weeks and her mother was coming. So he would take her on weekends. He walked her at five in the morning instead of the midnight dog walker. Like he didn't, he knew her issues um, and he didn't stress her in any way. It was just her and him, just the perfect house. Right. And then her mother came and he called me that day and said, you have to come get her because he tried treats. So he had the, she was 80 loves dogs very familiar with dogs. They followed my directions. I don't know why I was busy or something that I didn't come up help introduce them. It wouldn't have mattered if I was there, frankly. 
the mother sat on her couch. She's really a grandmother because she's 80. Looked down, threw food, didn't look at the dog. Simi tried to attack her. Thank God he had her on leash. Just a new person. Yeah, so she came back. And that was going to happen no matter where she was. She was going to kill somebody and uh, and or a dog. And I had all these other dogs. So what do you do? I'm not going to rehome a dog. I tried, actually. I would never do that now, knowing the risk. I would never do that. But I found that imaginary perfect home and that didn't work. So then do I live in isolation with her in the bedroom and I'm not enjoying my other dogs that are getting older? Um, and so I finally, my husband was traveling a lot and I said, I, I think we're going to have to put this dog down. I don't, I have no other, I have nothing left that we can do for her. And, it, and also the OCD was worse than ever. I mean, it, it got worse. Everything got worse. Nothing got better, no matter all the behavior modification, all the veterinary care, everything. Uh, the, the veterinary behavior said, that's what he said to me. He said, one day, I hope you realize this is not a failure of training. This is a failure to accept reality because I kept calling him saying, can we try this? Can we try this? Can we try this? And he said, the reality is this is not a dog that needs to be in anyone's home. It doesn't need to be here on the planet anymore. It's too much of a risk. And he had to tell me that, you know, because I had tried absolutely everything. I'm a person who spent my entire life defending dogs and protecting dogs, gave up a lucrative. I was a publicist making well over $100,000 a year, gave up all that to rescue dogs. And so I'm not person, I, I, my whole MO is help the dog, help the dog, help the dog, help the dog. That's what I've done my entire adult life. So for me to even think about putting down a somewhat physically healthy, like she had stomach issues and diarrhea and stuff, but that was the main physical issue besides OCD, which was bad. Like that alone was enough for me to think, like um, yeah. I kept telling myself, if I, if I could fix the aggression somehow magically, even though it was genetic in her and, and um, most of the sibling dogs were put down as well, eventually found out later. Um, I can't fix the OCD, none of the medication. So she can't be outside. So now she just lives in a room and a half. I mean, that's not a life. Her brain was just literally on fire to me. So I did finally call my local vet who wasn't a behaviorist, but she had studied more behavior than most vets. And she, after the dog attacked her, um, I'm not, I guess it was almost, she was almost two, Zimmy, because I kept, held on for two and a half wow. years. My, my husband was out of town and I called him and I said, he tried to kill, she tried to kill the vet today and would have, would have bit her right in the face if I hadn't had that muzzle on. No problem either, you know, and the vet was behind her touching her back to make sure there wasn't a spine problem. Um, so I said, I'm going to have to put this dog down. And I, you know, I was just so upset. I was just bawling for my husband was coming he came back every two weeks to our house it was worked out of state and he said I want you to wait for me to be there because I, I've been involved with this dog and it's going to be hard on you I said I can't I like I wish I had put her down that day right when that happened with the vet because the vet and I looked at each other like how are you going to protect pe protect people the dogs too could live till it's 12 or 15 um, and she knew everything that I had tried she had never put down a dog for behavior ever I was the first so I, I agreed with to wait for Jeff. So then I had two weeks with this dog knowing that she had a due date, a, a death date, basically. And so I also knew I could change my mind. If I could just come up with something in those two weeks that I hadn't already tried 400 times, new drug, new, maybe it's Benadryl. You know, we tried the probiotics. She just got worse and worse and worse. Like she was now excluded from my house. Like 
the main part of the house. She could not be with my other dogs because she wanted to kill them. And again, this is not a puppy who had to fight as a young dog. She wasn't traumatized in any way. It's genes, especially considering what happened to the rest of the litter. So this is a part of the story that I want to tell, even though it's, it's hard and graphic and I put a trigger warning on this um, because it is so hard, but this is the reality of the situation. And I've seen it many times from other owners, similar dogs. Um, there's a Facebook group called Losing Lulu after you've made that decision. It's really grief counseling because everybody is so traumatized by it, including me, I was traumatized. So the vet on that day to put her down gave us, I don't remember what tranquilizer, but she said, this is enough to kill a horse kill a horse or a human because we wanted her she had to be calm enough for the vet to get close enough to to do it yeah the dog licked my husband's head all the way to a 20 minute drive and was bouncing around the car it made her it gave her the opposite it gave her a lot of energy which she said it would kill i think it was a human it would kill a human Mm. yeah like we wanted her sedated you know it didn't it had, and I've seen that over and over. And that tells me that there's a wiring problem. Something is not working that the medication, which we think is going to affects dogs 99% of the time this way, it had the opposite effect on her. That has happened in dog owners who face this. And this is not a light choice, obviously for anyone. Um, just know that the sedation could cause hyperactivity. I've seen it several times with other, other my clients' dogs. Anyway, we did put her down, but she... They came out and gave her a shot of another sedation in the back of the car. I was hysterical. I kept wanting to change my mind at every every second. But I'm like, I can't keep people safe. I can't keep dogs safe. And she's not happy. That's the main thing. She's, she's never going to have a calm mind or personality. When the vet came out again, they were going to take her inside to do the final, but she needed to be sedated so they could care. She woke up and tried to attack the vet again. And I had to muzzle her for that. Like, oh, this is a dog. Yeah, it was, it was horrific. And I, I hate to share that with people, but I think, and it's in my book. I wrote about it. It's going to be her stories in the second book because that was my first experience with it. And I was distraught. I mean, I should have gone to grief counseling. I know that now, but I also felt relief when I could go home and open the doors. My heart dog got to sleep on the bed with me again. And then, then I, over time, I got mad that I took two years to try to fix, to try, because I could fix them all. I'm a behaviorist. Yeah. I work with these dogs all the time. If I can't fix her, nobody can fix her. And that's what was true. Nobody could fix that dog. A shot collar would have, she probably would have killed it. the person shocking her. Yeah. yeah. So that was my experience. I have not had a German Shepherd since then. That was seven or eight years ago. That was always my breed. It's on the cover of my book, both books. Yeah. Um, I just, it was such an emotional scar for me that I, I'm not going to have a German Shepherd. I don't think I might. But I, I, I switched to border collies and, and cattle dogs. Um, and, I, and when people make that decision, it is so easy to um, armchair quarterback and say, well, you didn't try this. You didn't try that. I tried absolutely everything short of a shock collar because I would not, oh, I will not put a shock collar on any dog if that's painful and abusive, in my opinion. And nine other countries agree with me. They're illegal in nine countries. Mine, mine does as of January this year fantastic and it will be that's the future it's going to take the states forever to get there but they will be illegal at some point everywhere because they're cruel anyway but between working with other veterinary 
veterinarians, veterinary behaviorists, other dog trainers, other behaviorists. Like I talked to some of the top people that I knew then because I was writing for Dogster. So I had access to some of these people. No one had any, there was nothing we tried that worked with her. Not even a little. Like my, my goal in working with a client that has a super reactive dog is I want to see lessening of the behavior. I wanted to see it get less and less and less frequent for the dog to do the outburst and a change. I want to start seeing a change in the dog based on what we're helping the dog with. If there's no change and the behavior gets worse, no matter what you throw at the dog, that's not training. That's not a training tool or protocol. That's a genetic, that's the dog's brain telling it to attack. Just like that terrier that um, Kim Brophy wrote about, get the mouse. Yeah get the mouse, get the mouse, get the mouse. Something crossed in this, all of her siblings that I know of, they all attacked people and dogs. And that's abnormal. That's very, very. And so some people were like, oh, she could have been a police dog. No, the police dog is not out biting every, the police dogs go to the elementary school on career day and the kids can pet the dog. You know, it's a good tempered, well-rounded dog trained to bite. And it's a sport for the dog to catch the bad guy. It's not a drooling, aggressive, I want to eat everything dog. Yeah. There was no job for her. I tried to give her a job as a search and rescue dog. You know, that's, so I, I just want to say, sorry, that took me a while to say, but it's the first time I have talked about it. So thank you for letting me talk. And I can only talk about it now because it's been eight, seven or eight years and I'm, I'm well past it. Emotionally, I wasn't, it was so raw for years and years and years. Um, like I said, I've never had another German shepherd because of the trauma. I want to um, maybe ask, ask you that. Sorry to interrupt you, Annie, but because right. there's two questions that are going through my mind. One is when that trainer told you like this is not accepting reality and then your decision to, to wait for your husband to be back. So those two weeks, yeah. what was going on mentally there and what was going say- on after? And, and, and maybe also speak to like people going through the same thing if, if you've learned anything there. Because one of the things you already said was like, I should have gone to grief counseling. You mentioned that like really briefly, but just in, in the weeks up to it and afterwards, if you're able yeah. to, if not, that is. Yeah, no, no, I think that's a great question because what I compare it to now is the, um, I think it's called the seven stages of grief and that are well-documented in humans. And one of them is bargaining. One of the stages is bargaining. Like say you, you've been given a cancer diagnosis and the doctor says you have four weeks to live. Well, part of the, we go through these stages and it's not fluid, you know, you go to seven and then four and then three and then whatever. But one of the stages is bargaining. Like um, I have liver disease. Okay, I'll stop drinking. I'll stop smoking. You know, I'll change my whole life. Like you're, bargain, you're bargaining with something that is set in stone, it's gonna happen. So it's just kind of a human way to get your mind around something terrible. It's the, and, or if someone dies, you know, like what if that person and the what ifs, what if they hadn't taken the car that day? What if I hadn't yelled at him yesterday? You know, um, so I was very much, I was exhausted because I was still training and writing the book. Uh, the Midnight Dog Walkers had a full training schedule. And mostly my heart hurt because my true companions that weren't trying to kill people or other dogs were now separated from me and they had never been separated from me we were we went everywhere as a pack all five of us you know off on our property off leash but they could go anywhere with me all of them um so that was in hindsight I hate that part and I I wish that I had the second I saw the OCD behavior before I she even attacked 
that should have been enough for me to send her back to the breeder and said, you put this dog on the planet, you have to deal with it. But I also knew she was a shock collar person. So that's a moral and ethical. If, if it was a, I consider them good breeders who's not going to shock a puppy or any dog, I would have sent it right back and said, I, you know, this dog is disrupting this entire house and I have other dogs that need me and deserve my care. Okay, so that two weeks, I was very much bargaining. I was really, and I was begging her in my mind, please don't chase the imaginary bugs. Please don't chase it. Like I would go sit her with her on the back porch. She would exhaust herself. And sometimes I would sit on the back porch with her on a leash because then she wouldn't go to the yard where she was hunting for the, the bugs. And then of course, half the year or more, there were bugs. There were butterflies and flies and we had like yeah. a set of horses. So there was always flies. Um, the only thing that would stop her to get her to stop outside was put her on the leash and give her something else to chew. Like if I didn't have her on the leash and gave her so, even a raw bone, she was gone. Like the brain said, chase the bug, chase the bug, chase the bug. Um, like I said, it could have been self-soothing behavior to try to calm herself down. Nobody knows. We don't know. So I would just sit out there and say, could you please stop? Just, you know, begging, begging. Please I think magically be. be better. Yeah. And yeah, you, I need a, I need a miracle. And I didn't get a miracle. There was no, there was nothing to do for her. I mean, literally we, I mean, I'm glad it happened now. And yes, what I felt afterwards, I did feel immediate relief when I got to go home and hug my dogs and be normal. And they had access to every room of the house and access to me, which is what they were used to. And I apologize, but I'm sorry I let this animal ruin their lives for two years or certainly drastically change it. I'm lucky that I didn't see behavior problems in them. They were just older dogs is the reason. And it's a bank account. You know, I put in so much love and attention to them that they're like, all right, this is weird. And I had dogs board with us that were reactive. And I had a different downstairs basement that I would stay down there sometimes. So they were kind of used to it, but this was daily, you know, separation for almost two years. Yeah, two and a half. And that I regret. I regret making that those animals suffer because they don't live very long. Um, I think Echo and Radar were maybe nine or two, uh, seven or eight. So seniors getting up there, they lived till they were 14, but I lost two years of that joy that we had previously had. But it, the important thing for me was that now I can truly walk in an owner's step shoes because it, it's been me. I had to make that decision. Um, I, I think I was also during that time, like, I'm going to ask my husband to make this decision because I can't. I'm the behaviorist. I love dogs. He never had a pet before he met me. <laughs> He's a very patient guy. Like I wanted him to make the decisions so I could tell myself I didn't. Not, I don't care what other people think. I really don't because um, they weren't there um, and maybe have not been there. You train enough dogs, you're going to run into one of these dogs now more than ever. Um, so I, don't, I didn't care what other people thought about my decision. I cared what I thought. And so it went against everything I was about, you know, to put down a dog that could probably live another 10 years. But I realized the danger too. Like I can really, because when you're working with a client and their dog, that's not your dog. You can do a, a professional layer of self-protection and probably maybe three to five times in 10 or 20 years if I recommended behavioral euthanasia. I think I would recommend it a lot more now because the dogs are so much more troubled. Um, it's not something I recommend lightly, but if I had not had my own personal experience, I would probably never recommend it. Because I would be like, well, we can we can help the dog. We have medicine. We have this. We have that. The dog needs more walking. The dog needs less walking. 
And that's what that behavior said to me. This is not a failure of training. This is a failure to accept reality. And I did until I couldn't do it anymore. Until I, when she tried to get the vet in the face, I'm like, that could be a kid. Some kid could wander onto our ranch. It's not like walled off coming home from school. And if I don't have her 100% locked up, and what, I can't have guests over? <laughs> you know, this is pre-COVID. So people went to each other's houses. So in the end, I felt enormous relief for her, which is going to sound weird because now she was at peace. She was so troubled from day one, anxious as hell, hypervigilant as hell. Everything was a threat. It was either a threat, something to go bite and take down, or it was something to chase and try to get in her mouth like a bug, even though the bugs didn't exist half the time. How did Um, you find peace again after? Because you said at, at one point you were relieved. Or you were immediately relieved, even I think you said. But yeah. then was that followed up by by guilt again, or had the trajectory up to that point been so long and so exhausting that basically you'd already grieved beforehand? I, yeah, anticipatory grief. I think I had, and I think it was that two week period that ended up actually helping me because I went through every scenario that that I had already been through a hundred times. But I kept thinking, think outside the box, think outside the box. There has to be something that I could do for her. Maybe I'll get a muzzle just fitted that she wears 24-7 that she can't get off of her face, like some kind of metal, horrible contraction. That doesn't stop her internal anxiety and vigilance and her desire to want to hurt something. Um, so it gave me, the, I think, the fine, and I was exhausted. I was physically exhausted. I was exhausted anyway, and then I added fire, kerosene to the fire by bringing her into our house. And keeping her, you know, I have to say I had the option to return her, but I'm, I'm, I'm not going to return a dog to be shocked, um, mm-hmm. healthy dog or unhealthy, but particularly unhealthy dog. So that wasn't an option for me. I couldn't rehome her. I tried. <laughs> it didn't work. I think I had gone through so many things with her that I knew that there was nothing else to do. Like, I mean, I called everybody <laughs> that I knew and I knew a lot of people because of my columns for doctor. Um, just out of total desperation. Like maybe if I talk to that expert over in another country, maybe they do it differently. Maybe they have a different drug that we don't have here in the States. And I think because I had exhausted every single avenue that we knew at the time. And I think about it now, well, would I do anything different now? And that dog was beyond my help from what I knew then and from the new stuff that I've learned in writing the second book. And that's what I see on the um, Losing Lulu page after people have made that horrible, horrible decision. Um, there, I think it helped me that I, one, had the training and knowledge and behavior experience behind me to know what to do because a dog owner doesn't know, what does a dog owner do with a dog like that? And I went too long, two and a half years was way too long. It's too much suffering for the dog, too much suffering for me and my dogs in particular. And so when I went on at, um, losing Lulu, it just, the pain and the agony that these dog owners have experienced especially like if what if it's a dog you got it's maybe a two-year-old dog and you got it from the shelter and nobody knows its history or worse they did know the history um and didn't tell the owner and your kid is bitten in the face you know you've had the dog one month and you love dogs you know that's why you got a rescue dog or you got it from the breeder and it at two i mean she started attacking my dog at four months of age so if you had a dog for four months, who gives up a puppy? Who wants to kill a puppy? Nobody wants to kill any of these dogs. You know, it's not why they got the dog. So 
Um, I, I think I was helped because I had worked with behavior euthanasia before with clients two or three times, maybe. Uh, we In my rescue experience where they did put down three or four dogs, like I wasn't the person that took the dog, thank God, to the vet to do it because I would have backed out. I was softer in that way. Um, but those dogs did not need to be pets. They bit somebody or, or nearly killed another dog. You know, it was very serious stuff. It was just so much more rare back then. And one reason I want to talk about this now is because it is gut-wrenching. Nobody wants to put down a dog for behavior. I mean, that's the very last resort because it's final. You can't take it back. And you don't get the dog because you want to hurt it. You know, it, that's why I said it feels like a betrayal if a dog bites you or hurts somebody or attacks your other dog. And losing Lulu, by the way, which you may not know this, but your listeners may not, that group was started from two trainers, Sue Alexander in Canada and Trish McMillan, I think is also Canadian. Trish has a ton of shelter work. Like that's what she trained shelter workers. High level of experience. She brought home a dog. Um, I think she had three days from the shelter that seemed fine in the shelter, like handled it really well. And the dog tried to kill one of her other dogs, like within two days of being in her house. Like this is a behavior. She knows exactly how to help a dog that just came out of the shelter. They had it. They couldn't get that dog off her dog. They had to get a bite stick, which is something shelters have that they stick in their mouth to get the teeth off the other dog. So that dog was killing her dog. And I I can't remember what all happened. I do think it lived, but it had all sorts. It was a smaller dog. She took it that day and put it down. Had a veterinarian. The veterinarian agreed. Because what? Do you rehome that dog? And and shame on um, rescue groups that would rehome that dog. That's not a dog that needs to be in a house with humans or other dogs. So where do you put it? In a cage? Yeah. Um, so anyway, Trish got so much hate mail because she wrote an article about it. And I think it was called something like, you can't save them all. All of the shock chocks, all the dog owners who, like me, believe you can save them all. And she's just a stupid idiot and doesn't have the training, which she can out-train anyone, um, including the shock jocks, as I call them. She got so much hate and was so devastated by it that I don't know how much longer, because first you have to make this hard decision and then you got all the judgments. And I said to people, you want my dog? If you think you can help her, you can have her, which I wouldn't ever really give them that dog because she was dangerous, but they don't want to take it. They don't want that dog in their life that's bitten somebody or tried to kill another dog. They just want to make you feel bad about it. I think out of not understanding and not having walked in those shoes, but it's still cruel. It's adding human misery. A a lot of judgment after you made the decision? from others i didn't i didn't because i think most people knew everything that i had done my close circle um but before the book came out the midnight dog walkers that's the only chapter i wrote about it in that book and that's the chapter i thought would get me they're going to come for me on amazon the trolls they're going to hate me because i had public dog training pages and it slipped under the radar somehow i don't know i expected a lot of hate I expected what happened to Trish to happen to me. And I was, I didn't care. I was going to write it anyway. It's a, it's the truth. It's a real situation that now millions and many, well, many, many dog owners, I don't know about millions, but way too many dog owners are having to go through this without the background that I had and support. I did have a very good support system. Um, so they, Sue Alexander and Trish decided to start lose, uh, losing Lulu because the dog's name was Lulu that she put down. Um, and, and because of all the hate she got. So now that place is a place of healing. And I love that they did that. But if any, I don't think, I think you said you can't get on the group unless you've actually put down a dog for behavior. That's how I understood it. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think that's right. Because it's not about helping you make the decision. They've recently started another one, but no one can make that decision for you. Like I wanted to put it on my husband briefly, you know, so I would not have to, which is dumb because I'm the dog trainer. He's not the dog trainer. Um, and I, I think it, it just matured me as a trainer. Like this is reality. There are some dangerous dogs. There are some very mentally unwell dogs, not because of the dog's fault. I still blame the humans. I blame the people who breed those dogs. Um, that's man-made. I feel like like dogs that live in the street, like 80% of dogs don't live in houses. They live near humans still in the world. Those dogs have better lives than what we're doing to our dogs in general. They have agency. They mate who they want to mate. They're not beating each other up and tearing each other's limbs and ears off. And our dogs are very troubled compared to those dogs in general. And I think that's a, that's a lesson for people. You know, why are those dogs happier? And um, they, they may get hit by a car or have diseases for sure. But this, even if they live shorter lives, they have, they're much happier than a great majority of our dogs. And I know that's going to make people mad that I said that because obviously if you have a dog, you love that dog and you want the best for the dog. But if that dog is troubled and is dangerous, I, I interviewed another trainer in the book who um, is a pit bull rescuer, knows the breed very well, very accomplished trainer. And she had a, a young dog. Um, she's never been bitten. I had never been bitten. I've never been bitten by a dog in all my work. I've been warned, but I've never actually had teeth break my skin at all because I don't push the dog to that point. And I'm very good at reading canine body language. That's what's protected me. Um, she is too. Her name is Lee. And um, she had a pit bull puppy that it was almost like rage syndrome, which we talk about, I think it's from Spaniels, where the, the dog's fine one minute and attacking the next. Yeah. And it's very much like they're over threshold and their eyes gloss over. And that's how my dog was 90% of her life, like gone, like over threshold. You cannot reach the dog. Um, but that's very scary when it's not predictable. Like my dog was predictable. She was going to go after everyone. It was just like that everything. all the time. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't sporadic. If she had a new person in front of her, she'd try to kill him. If she had a new dog in front of it, she'd try to kill it. That took some of the guesswork out because if it's a um, intermittent and you then you spend your whole life trying to figure out, well, let's just not stress that dog out. Maybe it's the mailman. Maybe it's a man. Maybe it's a UPS truck that set her off. You know, I'll move to the cabin in the woods kind of uh, bargaining. Um, but she had a young pit bull that attacked her, like that kind of rage syndrome. And she had never put down a dog either herself and rescued many, 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 many wonderful pit bulls. And she had to make the decision and she, I interviewed her in the book and she goes into great detail about what all that dog did to her. And she had bite scars on her, like the dog sleeping peacefully. And the next thing, you know, she's back into a corner. I think she said she had to put a long chair over it once because she was by herself in her house and nobody was around and the dog went after her and wouldn't stop and like bit her many times and a young dog, I think it was six or eight months old. And so she put it down and she talks about it freely in the book. And I applaud the trainers who do. And more of us need to be out here talking about it because we're proof that you can get through it and get a dog that can help you heal instead of breaking your heart. These dogs break your heart. And again, it's the hardest decision. Like to put down a dog for behavior versus cancer that you can't fix, that is probably the hardest thing I think I've ever done. And I feel like I did it for her, which will also upset the shock jocks, which again, I do not care what they think um because she was tormented i mean her brain literally was not functioning and so same with all her litter 
the dad attacked the son, the mother was rehomed and then finally put down. You know, it's just, it's bad genes. And I blame the breeders for that. I don't blame the dog. It's not her fault. Uh, I think that actually brings us kind of back full circle where we're kind of where we started at like breeding and choice and agency for our dogs. And luckily the shift that there's now where we're really actually also looking, like you said, like she, she wasn't happy um, that we're actually looking at the dog, their emotions, how they're feeling and how we can take that into account. I would have 20 million more questions about this, um, but I do want to be a little mindful of the time. I was going I was trying to keep my podcast episodes to an hour that definitely um, didn't work for this one. And I don't care because I think this is a super important um, topic that deserves the, the airtime or the radio time or the podcast time, however you want to call it. Um, but maybe we go to something slightly more cheerful um, yes. towards the end, which which is my three words that I ask everyone to comment on. And that luckily I remembered before we started recording to tell you that I was going to ask you that because I forgot to brief you beforehand. Um, but, but they're, um, oh gosh, I, I almost forgot them again. Um, I wrote them down. Ec- expectation. <laughs> Um, what was the other one? Frustration and celebration. Frustration. I'm doing it right. Cel- right. Yeah, celebration. I, I could read do, my writing. Yeah. I have to do more. I have to do the recordings more frequently. That's why. So I don't even forget my own questions anymore. But all of those in relation to to life with your dog. What do you got for us? Uh, with my current dogs, or just uh, any, just life with a dog. Whatever comes up for you. Uh, well, I'm going to start with frustration. Um, so frustration is very common when people call me, as, as and I'm often, as so many of my colleagues are, the seventh, eighth, tenth trainer to help the dog. So everything that they've tried up to then, even with professionals, and I put that in quotes, because anybody can claim to be a dog trainer and use any tool at this point in time, at least here, um, they're very frustrated when an owner finally gets to me. And I think in general, when they pick up the phone to call a professional for help, their, their, their frustration level is very high. So something has gone very wrong between two species um, that each equally have or should have a right to exist within the confines of that, that animal. You know, we talked about aggression being natural both in humans and in all animals because it's protective. Um, if there was no aggression, we'd all be dead by, the, by now. We wouldn't, the species wouldn't be here. It serves a purpose. It just doesn't work with dogs being aggressive to humans or other dogs in the house. Um, so I think frustration is, is like a wake up call for owners. If you're feeling frustrated, if you're feeling mad at your dog, disappointed in your dog, embarrassed, so many owners are, actually, and I feel for them, They're, they can't walk their dog in their neighborhood because the dog is lunging and barking and hysterical is the word they'll use. Um, that's a dog that is having a bad experience and the, the behavior should tell the owner something, um, which is get help for this dog, not yeah. beat it, not, not, not squish the behavior. So frustration is a wake up call. If you're frustrated with your dog, get help from a force free professional. The pet professional guild in the United States is the only, only organization that vets their 
member I'm a member of the pet professional guild just you know I don't have their shirt on but um they will not allow force or pain or fear that's their motto no no force pain or fear so pet professional guild is one resource in the United States um so that's frustration generally to wake up call pay attention something needs to change and often it's the human's behavior I can change a human's behavior faster than a dog because I can speak with a human and show them what a different way a different yeah. um, way of being with their dog so um expectation is also huge. Um, I write in the book that's coming out this fall that that's a whole lot of the problem. When that frustration sets in, it's because of our human expectations. And we've been unrealistic. And we're only getting more unrealistic about what we expect from a dog. You know, as Kim Brophy, the um, ethologist says, they're captive. They're just like a giraffe in the zoo. And think of what they do for giraffes and zoos. You know, um, zoo enrichment is a huge field. And there's still a lot of times the zoo animals are unhappy because they're captive animals. They were never meant to be captive. Do were dogs ever meant to be in our homes? Well, throughout the history, they haven't been. They've been beside us as we're working on the farm. Um, you know, maybe some smaller like toy dogs that the, the rich class had um, kept, them, kept their hands warm. They even um, were flea magnets, which for a long time, they kept them very wealthy from getting fleas and all the all the diseases that come from that. But in general, the dogs have not been in our houses. That's that's pretty new. And then when they were in our became in our houses the 100 years ago, 200 years ago, someone was home. Ma the woman was almost always home or somebody was home. You know, we didn't all go to the office. Um, and that's changed. Nobody's home anymore. So the dog's left alone with nothing to do. So it, um, our expectation is just sleep all day. <laughs> Wait till I get home. And then, by the way, I can't walk you because Johnny has soccer practice or whatever. Um, so I, I think the expectations lead to the frustration when we are unrealistic for what a dog's life should be like. And I hope that if owners are listening, that they'll take a step back and say, what expectations did I put on this animal who cannot speak, who has the brain capabilities of a toddler, two to three-year-old human? Um, and what expectations can I change? Can I, I wanted an agility dog. The dog is awful at it and hates it. And he's too stressed out. And he doesn't, do I work with a trainer for 10 years to try to turn him into an agility dog? Or do I say, there's something else we can do together. Maybe it's nose work where the dog goes in the room by itself. Not a, not a big loud field. Um, changing your expectations can lessen the frustration. And then the last one is celebration. And I think that those are three great words, and I like. I think it's good to end after the heavy discussion that we just had, talking about celebration because um, dogs are supposed to bring us joy. I mean, that's why we have them, and it's that human-canine bond, the actual love hormone that we're secreting in our brains and in their brains when we look at one another. That's a gift that we don't have from any other animal. I mean, you could maybe have it with horses. I've had horses. But the horses isn't not doesn't live in your bedroom, <laughs> doesn't sleep on the bed with you. These are very intimate family members. Um, and I think there's a, so much to celebrate there. Like behaviorists are always going on about all the behavior issues that we see because that's our world. But my own dogs bring me immense joy. Like I just, other than the car thing, which we just don't put them in the car. It's management. I just don't do it. I and mean, if I do, I will probably have to drug them because it's so traumatic for them. And I, yes, we did all the things all the ginger cookies, all the drugs. Anyway, um, but every day my dogs make me laugh. They bring me joy. They're silly. They're happy. I mean, these are the ha probably the happiest dogs I've had 
Um, part of it is just that healer, they love life. Um, yep. <laughs> many of them do. Yeah. But I, I would think to me, they're, they're kind of optimistic dogs. Like I, I'm on a bunch of healer rescue groups and they show them in shelters and even shelters are like grinning. Like they're just kind of silly and hardy, um, more resilient, I think, than some other breeds. And they're not as popular, you know, like you get a lab or a golden retriever, German shepherd, then they're always the most popular here and they have the most issues because they're overbred, et cetera. So anyway, there I go again, talking about that. <laughs> so ce- celebration is having that, doing everything that you can do. And some of the things we've talked about, like the, how important the breeding is and that puppy socialization and enrichment, setting your dogs up for success and then enjoying the hell out of them. Like just have fun with them. And I think a lot of people do. I think I'm just in this tunnel vision because that's what I do all day is talk about, you know, help troubled dogs. That they don't come to me and say, I'm having too much fun with my dog. Could you please help us? You know, I get the, yeah, I get you the, get the other end of the, the spectrum. Yeah. And even those dogs, you know, that's the joy that I get now is saying, helping an owner come to grips, come to terms with the dog in front of them that they wanted. They wanted a golden retriever, might even actually be a golden retriever that we think loves everybody and the perfect dog. And the dog is reactive and wants to kill people or defend itself and scare them away, whatever you, however you want to describe that. But, um, there is joy to be found even with reactive dogs and they have the most to teach you. The difficult dog, I learn the most from any dog by the dog that I put down. Uh, no, no one has broken my heart as much and no one has made me evolve a, as a trainer and grow up basically. It, she taught me to not uh, believe in unicorns that so, there are some dogs that we can't help. Most dogs we can help, which is the good news. And so that I think that's worth celebrating and we're learning more every single day this is the best time to be a dog owner and a trainer I think like I said I feel optimistic for the field and I haven't I really haven't until I wrote that book and met all these other professionals so I I think there's a lot to celebrate even though I just talked Debbie Downer for 30 minutes but um, beyond the troubled dogs even with the troubled dogs there's just really it should be you should be celebrating life with your dog they're they're a miracle that we have them. I think they keep a lot of us sane. Actually. Yeah, for sure. But I love what you said, like be optimistic and enjoy the hell out of them. I think that's a, a, a great, great note to end on. By the way, just on just really briefly on the topic of golden retrievers, because on the podcast, I've made a couple of jokes already in, in other episodes, like you thought you were going to get a golden retriever, but you got like dot, 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 filled in the blanks. If there's ever someone out there or you have a client with a reactive golden retriever that wants to share their story on the podcast and uh, then then send them my way. But that's just as an aside. Um, finally, if people want to know more about you, more about your book, like where would you send them? Where can they find you? Um, my website is my last name. It's phoenixdogs.com, www, and I'll spell it because it's spelled weird, P-H-E-N-I-X-D-O-G-S, plural.com, phoenixdogs. And I do um, online consultations. Almost We all have learned to do that thanks to COVID. And they work way better than we thought. Like we, we used to say that you had to see the dog in front of you. You had to t- not necessarily touch it, but you needed to see it in front of you. When, thanks to video, we can do so much from home. So I, I consult all over the world. My second book is coming out in late September. Um, the title is kind of changing a little bit, but it's basically um, positive reinforcement for aggressive or reactive dogs. But it covers way more than that. It covers every behavior issue that is common. And there's a lots of them. Um, and solutions, step-by-step solutions. Um, 
And again, I have the 21 experts. So um, you can pre-order that book on Amazon right now. Like the Midnight Dog Walkers just recently went out of print like last week. Somebody got the last couple of copies. Um, so whoever has it, congratulations. So you can get it on Kindle. Uh, it's just not the same because they put a ton of photos. The publisher put in beautiful photographs. I didn't do that. They, they paid for all of that. Um, so the second book will be out. We are doing interviews by we, I mean, my fellow behaviorist. She's Irish, Denise O'Moore, on my live Facebook page, which you don't have to be a friend of mine. You, if it's live, you can come and see it. We announce them in advance. We're, we've already interviewed several of the experts I've interviewed in the book, but we're also broad reaching. Like next, uh, the April 30th, we're going to be talking about the state of the U.S. dog training industry with some younger trainers. Like how are they, how do they perceive it? It's different from somebody who's 35 versus me is looking at 60. Um, their perceptions and what they need out of the industry that they're not getting. And that's something you and I have sort of talked about a little bit about, you know, our dog trainers okay? There's, this is a very hard yeah. Do- job. Yeah, we're going to have that post-recording still a little bit more of that talk for sure. <laughs> you need to be mentally and have a support system to, be, to work with animals at all, period, because it can be heartbreaking. It can be, you can be joyful. Like most of my job is... I love it. There's a few hard cases in here, in there. And the more we know, like Kim, Kim's ethology course, um, the better we are equipped to help these dogs. And that's, that's what I love about the industry right now, that it's changing rapidly. And the paradigm has shift is what does the dog need versus what we need the dog to be. Awesome. All right. I think the show notes for this episode are going to be like the most jam packed show notes ever because i'll try to link up most of the trainers you've talked about i'll link up your site facebook everything Uh, i hope um people will be able to find that online on the rough around the edges podcast site and um that just leaves me thanking you annie for your time and for your willingness to come on the podcast and also especially to talk about um such a difficult topic so thank you very 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 much thank you and thank you for giving me the space to talk about it i think it'll help dog owners you can find a link to the website with the show notes through either instagram at the russ cattle dog or through our facebook group with the same name as the podcast rough around the edges If you would like to come on the show and share your story with us, then you can also contact me through either of these channels. And last but not least, if you like listening to this podcast, then maybe consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or any of the other platforms that you may be listening to this podcast on, because they help us get found in the listings, allowing us to reach more people and help them feel less alone.